0: Hey, Rachel. Hey, Tim. Godzilla is famous for his atomic breath, but do you think before he goes on dates with Mothra, he has to pop in a Mentos?
1: Tim, I think you're being super critical.
0: Welcome to another episode of the Super Critical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and oftentimes nonsensical way pop culture portrays nuclear weapons. My name is Tim Westmeyer, someone who studies nuclear weapons and works on nuclear security and nonproliferation for a living. I am joined on the podcast today with two special guests from the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation, a nonpartisan nonprofit dedicated to enhancing peace and security through expert analysis and thought-provoking research hope I got that right. First, we've got Rachel Eamond, Scoville Fellow, focusing on the intersection between gender issues and nuclear policy. And we also have Jeff Wilson, returning guest. He is a policy analyst and host of his own excellent podcast called Nukes of Hazard. People will remember Jeff from the Starship Troopers and Chernobyl episodes of our podcast. Rachel and Jeff, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, thank you.
2: Thanks, Tim.
0: Great. Well, I'm glad you're here because really this is going to be a team effort for this podcast today. Uh, Much like how humans think we can bend the will of Mother Nature, we have the hubris in this room to take on the massive Godzilla franchise, uh, which now includes 35 movies, 32 that were made by Toho Studios in Japan, and three by Hollywood. One of the very first things I learned about Jeff before I even met him was that he was a huge Godzilla franchise fan. Uh, So let you know that's what your reputation is, Jeff.
2: Thank you. I'm pumped for it. I'm going to own it.
0: Uh, He even hosted a a recent movie watching party at the Plowshares Fund, uh, their office, where we watched the original 1954 Godzilla movie uh, with some other nuclear nerds. So, Jeff, where did this love of the Godzilla series come from? Definitely
2: as a child, and we're going to talk about it later, but... um... Like Godzilla was this thing that was franchised to American television stations for daytime television. Hmm. And so I remember on the weekends or when I was homesick, Godzilla was like always on in those periods where I had nothing better to do with my time, supposedly. And <laughs> it was like the most fun. And like as a like a young like seven through 13 year old like be like what the hell is going on look at this (laughs) giant rubber monster why are these people not like why are they dubbed so sillily like it doesn't make any sense like there's so many weird fun things and then like who doesn't love giant monsters fighting each other like Mm -hmm. i mean like as a young boy like that was the best like my dad and i would sit and watch like crummy Godzilla movies for hours at a time. And it was just fun. Did
0: you have the Godzilla
2: bed sheets? Oh, totally, man. <laughs> as we got older, you know, now we work in nuclear policy. We find out, wow, there's like this actually really interesting legacy mm-hmm. of nuclear weapons that are tied to these movies that I loved so much as a child. So it's all culminated in this interesting sort of lifelong love for this crazy monster.
0: Yeah, and the nuclear components are so rich to talk about. Uh, Rachel, you know, you recently wrote a really excellent piece on Ink Stick Media uh, with your colleague, uh, Deverick Holmes, and I think the article is called, Will the Real Godzilla Stand Up?, uh, which I love that title a lot. Uh, what did the idea for this article come from, and what did you do to research it and write it? Because it was about the, the nuclear history and components of Godzilla, including the most recent films.
1: So actually, one of our colleagues at work, Alex, uh, was the one who brought it up to Deverick and I. I guess the anniversary of Castle Bravo was coming up in March and she was like, hey, Rachel and Deverick, did you know that Godzilla's origin story comes from the Castle Bravo incident? We were both just like, what? No, we had Hmm. no idea. She suggested we write a piece on it if we wanted to. um, And we ended up we started doing research and just got inundated with it. We were like, this is insane. We cannot believe that we didn't know this. We cannot believe that it's changed so much. Um, And so our piece really ended up being this kind of critique of the fact that over the years, Godzilla has kind of, you know, not necessarily stuck to the original Japanese message that it had in 1954, which was nukes are bad and we shouldn't have them. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we watched, like... Thirty hours of Godzilla, I think. Some, some yeah. of which at work.
0: Oh wow! Perfect. Yeah. You can b- build time for that. I love it.
1: Yeah. Um, so that was really fun. Of course, well, fun sometimes. Some of them are not great movies. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so you watched a ton of Godzilla movies. Um, did a lot of research just on kind of uh, Ishira Honda, who is the original director of the first movie, and went from there. It was it was super fun.
0: Well, this is, this is going to be exciting, and I'm, I'm glad we have a great team here assembled because my Godzilla knowledge is is fairly limited to the original movie, a couple of the fun ones like you know Mechagodzilla and some of those, and the last couple. So the, I think the way we'll do this episode is you know when we tackle the nuclear themes and the plot points of the 35 movies in this franchise, Rachel will kickstart the episode by summarizing the first two movies, the original 1954 movie and then the americanization of the movie which then came out in 1956 uh jeff will kind of track the life of the franchise up to the 1998 hollywood movie that everyone loves to hate on so much but i don't think jeff does Mm. (laughs) uh and i'll tackle the last movies the godzilla from 2014 a hollywood movie directed by gareth edwards and then Godzilla King of the Monsters, which is the most recent one. I think it came out in June or July of this year, and we all saw it together Mm -hmm. in the theater. So I think that's a great way to kind of wrap all this up at the end. We'll spend most of our time talking about how the series talks about nuclear issues, how that changed over time, and why that matters. So let's get super critical. As usual, spoiler warning for all of the Godzilla movies, including the most recent ones. That is not in theaters anymore, but it is on video and on demand because Jeff watched it uh, yesterday. I own it now. Oh, perfect! Oh, wow. Yeah. wow, excellent. Uh, Rachel, why don't you kick us off, introduce us, pretend like someone has never even heard of this Godzilla, Godzilla thing? Who? Uh, but they're and they don't have time to watch the fifty-four and fifty-six movies. What? What? It, start us off here.
1: Okay. So the 1954 movie, which was titled Gojira, um, like I said earlier, was directed by Ishiro Honda um, and produced by Toho Studios. And it actually begins with an allusion to the Castle Bravo um, nuclear accident in the Marshall Islands. So that allusion in the movie looks like two Japanese freighter boats being completely destroyed and then an unaware Japanese fishing boat being destroyed as well. It's like a big um, flash of light yeah a big flash of light like uh, there's only a few survivors um it doesn't exactly show you how they died there's just a flash of light and like a clap of thunder and mm-hmm. they're all dead but um what i think is really interesting about the director is that he drew a lot of his experience from his world war ii experience which obviously we know that uh, the war world war ii ended with the dropping of the bombs on hiroshima and nagasaki um And he he says that most of the visual images he got were from his war experience. After the war, all of Japan as well as Tokyo were left in ashes. The atomic bomb had emerged and completely destroyed Hiroshima. If Godzilla had been a dinosaur or some other animal, he would have been killed by just one cannonball. But if he were equal to an atomic bomb, we wouldn't know what to do. So I took the characteristics of an atomic bomb and applied them to Godzilla.
0: Wow. Yeah, Yeah, that's pretty explicit. There's no subtlety there.
1: Yeah, so he's been pretty clear. And for those of you who may not know, the Castle Bravo nuclear accident was the United States' fault. Um, We were testing hydrogen bombs in the Marshall Islands, which is a small group of islands that is southwest of Japan. Um, The U.S. government essentially ordered the islands to be evacuated. The Marshall Islanders weren't really given a choice, and so they were moved... You know, it's a small group of islands. They picked out certain atolls to do the nuclear testing on and Mm -hmm. evacuated those atolls to send them to to other close atolls. But, you know, still that's a huge problem, right? Like, they're taking a group of people, moving them onto another small island where there wasn't enough room for them, and saying, like, eventually you'll be able to go back home, but right now we need this area to test atomic bombs so of course they weren't allowed to return home largely due to the castle bravo incident so in march of 1954 the u.s government had this nuclear test scheduled and they had roped off or marked off an area that was the blast zone that you weren't supposed to be inside and it was supposed to keep people from experiencing the negative side effects of radiation But then the explosion was twice the size that they actually intended it to be. And that obviously caused major issues because the radiation went outside the blast zone. There was nuclear debris or fallout, nuclear fallout that landed on nearby atolls where children were playing. Mm -hmm. The kids had never seen it before. They thought that it was snow, so they were playing in it. It destroyed the environment. And there are still major consequences for the Marshall Islanders today. Like I said, they haven't been able to return home. And um, they still, you know, can't eat the vegetables that grow there and they can't eat the fish in the water and um, caused a lot of major issues. This, There was a boat. This is where the actual Godzilla story comes from. There was a boat that was in what they thought was a safe distance from the blast zone. But because the blast was so much larger than originally intended, the boat got caught in the blast of the explosion. Um, so all of the crew members on the boat got extremely sick. Um, The fish that they caught were completely contaminated. Um, Couldn't sell them, obviously. Um, One person died pretty quickly after it happened, I think a couple months maybe. Mm -hmm. Um, The rest of the crew members were in the hospital for over a year.
0: This is the boat that translates into English as... Lucky Dragon number five.
1: Lucky Dragon number five, right. This incident, other than just the human tragedy that caused for the Marshall Islanders, then had some other really negative side effects in Japan. People were really afraid of getting sick from irradiated fish. Mm -hmm. So, and a lot of the fish in japan at the time was coming from these areas near the marshall islands so fishing like pretty much came to a complete halt in japan which you s- we see that in the movie i think
0: there's one scene where you it just scrolls across to, uh, some rows of you know uh, stalls of people selling fish and there's it, a, a slip of paper that says we do not sell atomic damage tuna
2: mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. and also there's there's scenes when they finally end up Killing the monster, there's seeds with lots of dead fish floating to the surface, mm. right? And so, like, the the imagery is very, very poignant mm-hmm. for that.
1: Mm-hmm. So, I, I think it's interesting to... Or it's important to understand this incident was real because the movie is largely a response to the incident. Came
0: out pretty quickly afterwards, too. Mm-hmm. So, Castle Bravo was...
1: 1954 in March. The movie came out later that year, actually. Um, Yeah. And I think... You still still
0: want to turn around movies much faster. Yeah. When you you have to do two years of CGI.
1: And and they were were already filming it, but it was originally supposed to be um, similar to a lot of other kind of monster movies at the time. Um, There were lots of monster movies happening in the 1950s, and this was supposed to be similar to others, like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. A lot of the monster movies at the time were atomic, but... Mm -hmm. Um, this one wasn't necessarily supposed to be such a political critique. And then the director was like, no, we have, this, we have to send a message. So it starts off with an allusion to this incident. Uh, after the boats are destroyed, nobody's catching any fish, and a village elder blames it on a mysterious Godzilla, who everyone believes is a giant sea creature, an ancient giant sea creature. Um, There's a really destructive storm in the movie, and Godzilla is seen um, destroying homes, destroying eating livestock, and killing people. Mm. Which I think is really interesting, because that's exactly what would happen if we were to drop a nuclear weapon again.
2: Right. And it, like, yeah. to make it even more explicit, like, he leaves radiation behind wherever he yeah. goes, right? Yeah. A radioactive footprint. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. literally a yeah, literally yeah. radioactive footprint. Like,
1: uh, yeah, Godzilla is... Shiro, Honda's Godzilla, is this very clear, explicit metaphor for the consequences of a nuclear weapon.
2: Like, his skin is supposed to look like keloid scarring, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, like, Honda walked... Home through Hiroshima after the bombing on his return home. Okay, um, he was a oh, Japanese. Yeah, so he was a Japanese soldier, and he saw firsthand the destruction and what it had done to Hibakusa. Right, the survivors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings, and so like the allegories are like really in plain mm-hmm. sight. It's like very reflective of Japanese fears, and especially like the Castle Bravo test. They realized that they were at risk from nuclear bombs even when they weren't being used against them in wartime, mm-hmm. right? The Japanese people were still dying from American nuclear weapons.
0: Yeah, I mean, people certainly make this argument and I think I think it's very completely re- uh, reasonable that nuclear warfare in the sense of dropping the bombs an act of war, they ended in 45, but, you know, uranium mining produces a large amount of mm-hmm. of waste which causes a lot of sickness for people that live, you know, nearby those places, all of the testing to the people that it is affecting. I don't know necessarily for some of them what the difference is when they still have to deal with those same consequences continually.
1: And uh, it's interesting because they also then bring in the government, too. They don't just leave the Japanese government out of it. They recognize that, you know, they are somewhat at fault for this as well. So after Godzilla destroys this coastal village, they go to Tokyo and demand action from the Japanese government. They want relief aid, and they want something done about Godzilla. All the government does at the time is send this paleontologist named uh, Yamane to kind of check it out, see what's going on. Yomain tells the Japanese government that Godzilla is a dinosaur who has, in fact, been disturbed from his underwater habitat by U.S. hydrogen bomb testing. Uh, yeah. And they're, they're pretty that. That would wake me that, up, too. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Is, is it meant to be that Godzilla was always this large? Or was the nuclear testing uh, and the radiation is it one of those films where the radioactivity causes him not only to wake from his slumber, but to, to be a... Uh, a larger, more powerful person.
1: He he grows throughout the movie. Yeah. Okay. So they're not clear on whether or not he is the size that he is when he wakes up. And then he grows as he's like on land. It's implied that the radiation is causing him to get larger. Because throughout the movie you see him kind of like transforming and morphing into this much larger mm. monster. He starts out really looking like a sea creature. And then by the end of it, like a much more insidious, scary, scary monster. After Yamane tells the Japanese government that Godzilla has been awakened by uh, U.S. hydrogen bomb testing, there continues throughout the movie to be this kind of back and forth between Godzilla, the Japanese government, and Yamane. Godzilla is destroying cities. The Japanese government tries to use conventional military forces to kill him. How does that work? It doesn't. Shocker. Spoiler alert. Everyone's really surprised. And Yamane... Like, bucks up against it the whole time. He's like, we shouldn't be trying to kill Godzilla. We should study him. Um, He's particularly interested in the fact that he, A, uh, survived hydrogen bomb Mm -hmm. testing, and B, is now not only immune from radiation but also leaves it places like jeff mentioned earlier so he's really set on the fact that he thinks that we should be studying godzilla
0: yeah there's one quote he has in the film where he says uh where someone asks him you know dr yamane don't you think that godzilla is the very atomic bomb that threatens and shadows the japanese Mm -hmm. so even the people themselves are talking about it there's this great scene on a train and these aren't i don't think these are main characters they're just People on a train and uh, one woman is having a conversation with her colleagues and she says, the radioactive rain and tuna are just so depressing. Hmm. And then here comes Godzilla. What will happen to us if he lands in Tokyo Bay? I mean, I don't want to die now. I'm one of the few survivors from the Nagasaki bombing. So people are really connecting these things.
1: Mm-hmm. So uh, then at this point in the movie, uh, one of co coworkers, Sarah Zawa, who, this is also very interesting. There's like this little love story going on yeah. at the same time, which is uh, kind of funny. I don't I don't know that much about kaiju films, but I think that that's kind of a recurring theme, right? That there's always somewhat of a, a minor love story go, going on in the background. You have to movie. have
0: something, you have to have characters you care about, <laughs> right. so you care when they get stepped on.
1: right. So Yamane's daughter has this like love tra- triangle going yeah. on with Sarazawa, who is one of co coworkers, and yeah. then also like a Japanese military right. official. Um, well, and it's
2: still like like it's a product of its time. This is still very pulpy, yeah. right? It's still a pulpy movie. Like
0: I mean, the so it's fun because uh, Sarazawa is not meant to be like a. Evil mad scientist, despite the fact he has a very nefarious looking eye patch, Um, he's not meant to be, he's not, you know, Frankenstein. He's not trying to create a monster, although he feels. Ultimately, you know, we'll talk about this in a second. The thing that he does create, he doesn't. He's not happy yeah. about. But he's not meant to be like you. You're supposed to look at him and go, "Huh, I don't know what's going on about this." But he's not evil in that well,
2: sense. He's very tortured, right? He's the tortured scientist. But he, and the, like, this is one of my favorite parts of the movie. He is creating a
0: monster. Mm-hmm. It's just not. The physical monster of the movie that you're presented with, right? But he's yeah, exactly. But he's he's good. He's you know he's got an eye for weapons of mass destruction, uh, and he knows what he needs to do to, to defeat Godzilla. And what what does he ultimately come up with? What's his idea?
1: So he creates this weapon called the Oxygen Destroyer, and like you said, he's Great. he's not happy about it at all. Um, He really doesn't want to use it because he's pretty certain that once this weapon is out there, that all of the superpowers in the world will force him into creating replicas of the oxygen destroyer so that they can create what he calls a super weapon.
0: And I love the scene where he demonstrates this to his, you know, the love interest. And because he's very excited by it, but he also is very disturbed by it. But he says, "Okay, check this out. And he drops a little pellet into a fish tank. And we don't see what happens at first. You just see the reaction of the uh, the person who's watching it for the first time. And there's just a scream of horror. And the next shot you see just skeletons mm-hmm. of the fish floating mm-hmm. around.
1: And she, you know, in the movie, I think what is kind of interesting, this is like very rom com in a way. I guess it, maybe back then it wasn't funny and now when we're watching it back mm-hmm. you know it's over 50 years later it's it's humorous just because of the way it's filmed she went there the time that he was gonna show her this this oxygen destroyer she went intending to break up with him mm-hmm. and then she was so horrified by his creation that she just left she forgot she <laughs> yeah. forgot to break up with him she just had to get out um, which I
0: think is You know, I pulled that trick funny. before. When you think someone's about to break up with you, you just show them something horrible. Like, oh quickly, uh check out these skeletons I've got in this closet. And then they leave and it's like it's like a George Cassandra thing. She didn't break up with me I'm about answering the phone. She can't break up with me in person
1: um what's funny i mean they they kind of work it in she ends up then being the one who kind of uh, she works alongside to maybe she's kind of gaslighting him but she eventually Uh convinces him to use the weapon so along with her trying to convince him and he also sees a tv program he sees a tv program about the destruction Mm -hmm. that's going on and how horrific this tragedy is and um you know godzilla really needs to be destroyed he decides after seeing this tv program um, he agrees to use the oxygen destroyer, but first he burns his notes and decides that he has to die along with Godzilla uh, so that no superpower can, you know, force him into creating this for larger evils.
2: Very responsible. <laughs> this tragic, noble tragic, sacrifice. Yes, yeah. Yeah.
1: right. So the movie ends with Sarazawa and Godzilla's death, and then Yamane says... So back to this original paleontologist. He says, "If we keep on conducting nuclear tests, it's possible that another Godzilla might appear somewhere in the world again." That's yeah. the last line of the movie, which is yeah. really yeah. powerful.
0: Yeah, and it's one of those movies where I, I'm pretty sure a lot of the, all the credits are at the very beginning, so mm-hmm. the movie just ends. Yeah. And I always I do, I do enjoy those. You know, as much as I enjoy my my Marvel movies with multiple yeah. credits and end credit scenes and things, uh, it is kind of fun to watch a film where. No, the end boom and then the your vhs tape pops back out mm-hmm. um those don't happen too much these days so just to add on to this
2: i think that there's a couple of really important points that set the stage for the series here that we see throughout all of them going forward including the newest ones right okay most important is that godzilla brushes aside all human conceits right like he doesn't give a f- <laughs> about he doesn't he doesn't care at all <laughs> About, the like, how many tanks you have, or the missiles, or the aircraft, or the size of your conventional military forces. He doesn't care about anything that humans can throw at him, right? It's
0: also unclear about if he has a motive. Yeah. Or if it's even a he. It's just a, you know, I'm walking around, I'm stomping on things. Right. You annoy me, I'm going to stomp on you. It's But there's no right. intent by a lot of this stuff. He's a,
2: he's a force of nature. Which segues nicely into my favorite sort of goofy point about Godzilla is... In almost every single movie, in every single medium, is the everlasting optimism of the infantrymen <laughs> dealing with Godzilla, is dudes with rifles always standing in front of this giant 100-foot monster, just blazing away like they can do something. And I love that in every Godzilla movie.
0: Yeah, it's just, you know, I'll get that lucky shot. Yeah, I'm going to take that... this
2: thing down. Right.
0: Um, so this was the Japanese version. Uh, clearly, it, it did really well in Japan. Um, mm-hmm. But for an American audience, they changed a few things uh, so that we, as as Americans, would be able to tolerate this film. What, what things did they change? Because this is the one that came out in 1956. 1956.
1: Yeah. So um, the 1956 version really was uh, – you called it an Americanization earlier, and that's exactly what it was. It was – hollywood's direct response to the 1954 godzilla in japan it was directed by terry morse and they also list ishiro honda as a director on the movie but my understanding is that he wasn't he wasn't involved. It was right. just because they really used the same movie. They right. like took the footage from the 1954 movie and they removed 16 minutes of it. Um, and that 16 minutes is anywhere that mentioned the United States. Mm-hmm. It's anywhere that made like an overt political message. They didn't want to completely remove nuclear weapons because nuclear monsters were right. doing so well in yeah. the U.S. at the time.
2: But anything about American nuclear testing. Yeah, yeah.
1: anything that was like yeah. a potential political message about the morality of nuclear weapons and specifically the morality of u.s nuclear weapons was completely removed um, because hollywood was pretty sure that you know on the end of world war ii at the beginning of the cold war that that just wasn't going to sit well with american audiences that it was going to really upset world war ii veterans
0: and americans were starting to be even louder about nuclear testing as well Mm -hmm. some of the the earliest anti-nuclear protest movements started after Castle Bravo mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean the plot line is really essentially the same um, well,
0: it, right it's the same, it's movie, the same right? movie
1: it's the same movie we and get a, we get a new
0: character a we new hero get a New
1: character and so what they do with that extra footage time is they insert this American journalist named Steve Martin and they <laughs> narrate this Japanese experience of castle bravo nuclear incident the beginning is still the same i'm pretty much i think it opens with steve martin like talking the allusion to castle bravo is still there except that later on in the movie when yamane discovers that godzilla is a irradiated dinosaur he blames it on general hydrogen bomb testing mm. not u.s nuclear weapons testing
0: it was Zarbamba. bomba did it
1: yeah <laughs> So anyway, yeah, the, the rest of the movie is essentially the same, except that you have Steve, Bart- Steve Martin, this American journalist, kind of narrating the whole thing. And then the ending is the other really big moment. So instead of it ending with this really overt message from Yamane, Sarazawa still dies along with Godzilla, along with the you know destruction of the instructions on how to make the oxygen destroyer. And then Steve Martin, the American, says the menace was gone so was a great man but the whole world could wake up and live again so there's this really (laughs) stark difference between the end of the american movie and the end of the japanese movie where you see like the american movie essentially portrays nuclear weapons godzilla nuclear weapons whatever as a necessary evil Mm -hmm. destruction happens people die but Ultimately, nuclear weapons is what saved us. It's what ended the war. It We had to do it. Um, whereas the Japanese, you know, kind of have a very different experience with nuclear weapons and nuclear testing.
0: That quote could be on a banner that you would unfurl uh, during post-World War II reconstruction efforts the United States had with Japan, you know, during the occupation period. It could see that being the 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 theme, the message.
2: Yeah, and and I mean, like like Rachel says, like this difference is so stark. Mm-hmm. The American version takes out any sort of culpability. It's like you said, it's narrated from the perspective of a white man, yeah. um, mm-hmm. which is just so weird and cringeworthy. It ends on a high note, mm-hmm. whereas the to the Japanese, that their version is very much like. This is a product of what could happen and could continue to happen if we don't do something about mm-hmm. this thing. Mm-hmm. And and I think what is important is that is that Godzilla going forward is always sort of this persona, most of the time, is this personification of Japanese fears and anxieties about what's going on in the world. Americans see it as entertainment value mm-hmm. and, and almost exactly where the future of the franchise
0: goes. Moving forward, this is always a continual debate about how you refresh Godzilla for a new audience how do you keep this fresh can you keep telling the same you know depressing but also very powerful nuclear weapon uh, movie every time well we have a what decades and decades of films so i think what i want you to do is take us through the 1956 movie and you know, after that, but up until the 1988 Hollywood movie with, you know, Matthew Broderick, Jean Reno.
1: AKA the worst Godzilla movie.
0: There we go. How dare you. So let walk us through. How does Godzilla change when he, you know, marches forward through time? Sure. Yeah. So obviously the
2: answer is no. All of them don't have the same sort of character or drama as
0: the first one did. Well, what's the very next movie after the American version comes out?
2: Right. So then there's Godzilla Raids again, which is sort of panned. It's not by Ushira Honda anymore. But then the third movie in the Japanese series is Godzilla versus King Kong. For an international audience, right? It's very much... Let's take these two staples of the monster universe and smash them together.
0: It's perfect. It's like, it's like Avengers number one. Yeah. You know? you get you got your new movies and you bring them together. Exactly. And, and, I mean,
2: like if you want to talk about this sort of, you know, Steven Spielberg credits Godzilla is being the thing that sort of made him want to make Jurassic Park. You know, like there's all these great directors out there that talk about franchises in the way that Godzilla was set up and sort of right here is where you see this sort of Avengers you know of uh-huh. of this franchise let's take another really really memorable monster King Kong and let's have them duke it out what more could audiences possibly want Then you get Mothra versus Godzilla, Ghidorah versus Godzilla, Mechagodzilla versus Godzilla. (laughs) They come up with this whole stable of monsters. And that's sort of what we know. And the interesting thing is, though, just to focus in on King Kong just for a second... Is that I went and I looked at um, ticket sales for all of the Godzilla movies, all the way from the first one, all the way up to the most recent one, Godzilla King of the Monsters. And the interesting thing is 1962 Godzilla vs. King Kong sold 12 million tickets, which is just a ton. I was yeah, talking to my, a lot. Yeah, I was talking to my wife about this this morning, and she said when people say like, oh, you know, Miley Cyrus sold more records than anybody ever than elvis right remember a couple of years ago people were talking about <laughs> that my wife was like there's more people today to listen to music right there's more audiences are growing but i think it's important to remember that 2019's godzilla king of the monsters also sold 12 million tickets you know a little bit more it was it was 12 million in the united states of canada and it was 400 thousand in japan mm-hmm. right so the the audience size is growing but even in 1962, this movie set the bar for Godzilla movies all the way up until 1998's Godzilla, which despite you guys saying is a terrible movie, <laughs> still holds the record for most ticket sales out of any Godzilla movie. It was almost,
0: uh, just in the United States alone, was almost 30 million tickets. Sold. Roland Emmerich brings that up every um, single time he's at a, a cocktail party. Yeah. He's like, you'll start a conversation. You know, you know, I sold 12 million tickets.
2: Yeah. It was 30 million in the United States. Three million in Japan, which is the best international ticket sale for a Godzilla movie. These movies, they start to change. They take on more characters. They take on increasingly convoluted plots.
0: Because right? Godzilla in the first two films is... If you were to characterize him on the D&D scale of chaotic... Versus evil and all of that stuff. He's chaotic evil. Yeah. Chaotic evil. I mean, right? Because yeah. he's doing some stuff. Or at worst, he's like chaotic neutral. neutral. Yeah. So he's causing some problems. Right. Right? We don't know what his motivations are. But what does he, be- he becomes Once he starts to introduce some of these other villains. So so he
2: starts off as an antagonist. He maintains himself as an antagonist for the like first six movies. And then these increasingly convoluted plots start to show up. Okay. You know, uh, the three-headed monster, Ghidorah, right? Uh, Mothra, Rodan, uh, Biolante, Hedorah, you know, all these crazy monsters. And eventually he starts to become more beneficent.
1: I think what's interesting about this is you're right. Like, he does, he becomes less of an antagonist, but he's still irradiated, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. he never loses his little bit of, like, hes he's still a nuclear weapon, yeah. right? And so it almost becomes this, like, soft propaganda of, mm. like, Godzilla's bad. He's a monster who has the capacity to cause really terrible problems yeah. for people, but ultimately he's saving us from even larger evils. Yeah. He becomes like,
0: a friend of the children, and
1: right, yeah. right. It's, be- it's, yeah, go ahead. It's, I mean,
2: it's it's a, it's a great point. Like. They're still causing, they're still destroying cities, right? Like, they're still killing what we assume are hundreds of thousands of people. Although yeah. they
1: never show it. They right. They never show yeah.
2: it. Yeah. yeah. They sh- lots of models getting destroyed. But lots of, uh, you know, it reminds me of, like, train set sort yeah. of models getting stepped on. Now also, I think it's important to note that the eras of Godzilla films are broken up by Japanese emperors is, is how they're, oh, they're different they eras. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's. Uh, Hirohito is the Showa era. It's interesting because these are the movies that Americans mostly know. These are those syndicated films, right, that are on during the daytime. This is why so many Americans that are around their 30s now know Godzilla. They remember seeing these horribly dubbed silly things. You know, some some interesting stuff does happen. They, They can be really, really moody. You know, Mothra is this, like shinto sort of mystical god creature who defends children and defends this island of of sort of shinto worshipers and stuff from godzilla and then later becomes a godzilla ally giant giant moth too clarify that yeah and there's also – there's other spin-offs. There's Rodan, right, which to me as a child was the most terrifying monster in the mm. entire
0: world. And right? this looks like a – basically like a terror like a fire-breathing uh, yeah. pterodactyl. It's a big pterodactyl and it
2: flies so fast that it destroys everything it moves over, you know, And it, on top of eating people and, and scary stuff. You know, some of these monsters directly reflect other concerns of the Japanese people at the time. Pollution, you know, there's Hedorah, the smog monster. There's worries about cloning and, you know, uh, environmental catastrophe and space radiation and you know anytime that there's some new wild sort of public concern there's a monster
0: that sort of goes along with it. And then there's eventually we get introduced to, to uh, villains from outside of the earth itself. Right. There are no less
2: than there's there's definitely there's two separate races of space aliens that try to invade.
0: <laughs> I know there was two. Yeah.
2: Yeah. One uh, they have silly names that I can't remember but one of them are from from Venus and they do things like possess a Japanese princess and use her to control mecha godzilla, you know, and she's forced to kill herself in noble sacrifice to destroy that monster. Whoa, okay. Yeah. These ape men aliens,
0: there's there's all sorts of crazy stuff that goes on here. And Godzilla protects us from those people right including including uh king Ghidorah, yeah king Ghidorah, Gider, the one with the three-headed yeah, yeah a space alien right
2: right uh, definitely a space alien uh ultraman gets involved somewhere along the line another japanese <laughs> franchise uh, sort of kaiju Mecha godzilla my favorite which yeah. is this thing that's designed to look like godzilla and make the people Scared of Godzilla again, mm-hmm. right? So, so it's this giant monster that that, that everybody thinks Godzilla. Wow, we thought he was our friend now, and so you go you go all the way through a couple different eras, all the way to where the Japanese defense forces, which are always, even though they're always futile in their efforts, <laughs> they're always portrayed really, really well right. because the Japanese defense force. Are universally
0: loved, you know, um, but yeah. they end up having big mech warriors and stuff. I think it's worth noting too, just in terms of Japanese uh, politics and Japanese official approach to nuclear weapons. It's in the constitution that they will not do a nuclear weapons program. Yeah, uh, they've made explicit uh, declarations that they will never procure a nuclear weapon. They have a very, but they also have a very robust. Until Fukushima, they had a very robust nuclear energy program. They reprocessed their own. Uh, plutonium. Right. You know, they do all these things uh, that a lot of other countries don't do with nuclear energy, but they also have a very explicit pledge not to turn that into a nuclear weapons program. It's not really easy to do that, but it is, you know, Japan is at that point where if they really wanted to, I know a lot of studies have pointed to the fact it would take them six to 12 months to build an actual nuclear weapons program. They have, they certainly have missiles. They have lots of things. They don't have ICBMs, but they have things that you could convert. They have uh, lots of fighter jets they could convert into nuclear bombers but they have made an explicit statement not to so this is a lot of the backdrop that you now have they do have the self-defense force but it's it's limited right jeff by the Mm -hmm. number of missions that it can go about that's not just defending japan they're not really they have to have explicit permission they couldn't just start a war with someone else whole different setup about what operations they're allowed to do
2: when the when the united states helped rewrite the jap or wrote the japanese constitution after world war ii it said that they shall not you know, have a military for offensive operations. They're allowed to have this self-defense force for things like maritime security and piracy and Coast Guard and, you know, stuff like that. And they they have a limited air force, a limited army. And interestingly enough, one of the things that is happening right now is sort of the rearming of Japan, right, with worries about Korea and China and huge buildup in the Chinese military. One of the biggest Chinese gripes towards the United States is that we've been allowing Japan to build up the self-defense force. Mm-hmm. And the question is, is, that justified or not? You know, the Japanese people are, are still very, very anti-militaristic, but their politicians, Shinzo Abe being an example, are very nationalistic and believe in strong military powers. Um, and it's always present in these movies somewhat as a good thing, right?
0: That they, It is defending Japan. Right. They, they get increasingly more uh, complicated, and, and I really mean complicated. We'll play a game about that in a second. Complicated and more destructive weapons. Mm-hmm. None of them ever work against Godzilla, really. Mm-hmm. But they are—they're getting more capable of defending themselves, or in some instances, working on, alongside Godzilla yeah. to, that, to fight the, the, the villain.
2: That would be an interesting thing to talk about someday. Is is about whether or not Godzilla sparks a in an, an arms race in the Japanese self defense force, yeah. right? You know. But anyways, there's a ton of these movies. There's 31 of them. Um, They go all the way up before Toho decides
0: that it's going to license the monster to Hollywood. And then we get the 1998 movie, which is just called Godzilla. Godzilla. And I I love this. uh, I love everything except for the movie about this movie i love all of the promotional material i i, I am one of the size people, does matter like literally they would say that on the side of a bus mm-hmm. and there would be one that would say like his toenail is larger than this bus yeah. uh you had the taco bell commercials where yep. the the little chihuahua would try to trap godzilla and would then say we need a bigger box because yeah, it right. turns out he's too big yeah um but yeah so we we get this movie in X ninety eight uh, I one of the things I just I, you know, I want you to talk about it because you're the you want to, the, the great defender of this. I love this movie. <laughs> I feel, I feel <laughs> feel. Not great, but I love <laughs> this movie. But so in the original films, uh, Godzilla is awakened and strengthened by U.S. nuclear testing, except for the American version, which was general testing. What does this movie explicitly say that causes Godzilla <laughs> to become the Godzilla that we know in the 1998 movie? Godzilla is an iguana.
2: Uh, somewhere in uh, French uh, atoll in the South Pacific that is nuked by French nuclear testing, <laughs> specifically French, not American. Um, yeah, which is which is bananas. It's so funny. I yeah. know it's, it's it's ridiculous. Maybe Ro- maybe Roland Emmerich has this long-standing grudge against the French. <laughs> no, <I> just, <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't-
1: we could have blamed for this. Yeah. We like, it's definitely the French. Yeah.
0: I think it does work a little bit because when the new Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty opened for signature in 1996, a lot of countries signed it on that day, but a couple countries decided to do a little bit of testing <laughs> yeah. at the last little bit before they they got done here. Uh, and the U.S. had stopped testing in 92 as part of a moratorium. China did a few rounds of testing and so did France. Yep. France did nuclear testing in Polynesia 90s, beautiful yeah. places in the late nineties yeah. so I do it's funny, but it does also every person when you're writing a screenplay, you want to have a hook so that yeah. someone remembers it and I look, I was in sixth grade when when uh, the nuclear test man treaty came up for for signature, but I do remember even in the news people making comments about why are the French still testing nuclear weapons and why are they doing it in these beautiful places
2: yeah it just at the same time though it just is so trite coming from hollywood yeah. right like like oh as americans let's blame this this long-standing history of american nukes on the french it's a strange characterization of this famous monster
0: what does this monster look like Ra- rachel you've seen this movie as mm-hmm. well Yeah. Did you try to get this movie out of the way first in you when you endeavored to do no, research? No,
1: we watched in order. So, okay. we did do like we did 1954 and then we did 1956. And I think this might have actually yeah, this might have been the next movie we watched because we just read about um kind of all of the in-between films, I guess. Mm-hmm. 1998 was the next big franchise film that we watched and i the whole time we were watching it this was one of the ones we watched in the office and we just sat there we were like looking at each other like is this happening um but he really does look godzilla also godzilla's not a he in that movie Mm -hmm. he's it it is asexual we we joke he Godzilla actually lays eggs in this movie. Mm -hmm. Um, In Madison Square Garden. In Madison Square Garden, no less. We joked that Godzilla was a woman in this movie because that's fun. But, um, (laughs) yeah, yeah, no, he looks like, it looks like a giant green lizard. It looks straight out of of Jurassic Park. I mean, it really does.
2: The setup for this movie is French nuclear testing irradiates some sort of sea iguana uh and then over
0: some you know those sea iguanas. No, I
2: mean an aquatic iguana
0: which exists. Those him. exist? Yes, they exist. I don't believe you. I How dare be- you? I don't believe narwhals or sea iguanas <laughs> exist.
2: Oh no, no, it's an aquatic iguana and then after some indeterminate amount of time that nobody notices spawns Godzilla, right? Like <laughs> Remember? Right, but it's <laughs> like it's not like it grew to like a hundred feet that's overnight, true. True. right? Yeah. Like, like one has to assume that there are French scientists
0: crawling all
2: over these islands and stuff. You know, that's just how
0: good the French bomb is. No, uh, that's fair.
2: <laughs> yeah, but so uh, my a couple of things, you know, uh, stars Matthew Broderick, a p- really just. Pitch perfect. Hank Azaria is yep. the cameraman. And Jean Renault. Uh, my favorite. Oh, yeah. The professional Jean Renault uh, as the French Secret Service attache who is deployed into a secret mission inside New York City to mm-hmm. try to clean up his country's nuclear legacy, which is almost exactly what he says. That's what he is. I mean, that's what he is in the
0: professional, a cleaner.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Also, late 90s humor of this movie about French American things, I just i love it's perfect uh Jean Renault hands them all a stick of gum and matthew broderick says why why are you all chewing gum and they're very loudly chewing with their mouths open it says, makes us look more american right <laughs> which is a classic french joke about americans pretty you know?
0: good yeah pretty good so what other new things are in this movie because it does follow if you were to uh have your i don't know seven-year-old write a godzilla movie it pretty much follows that track it's godzilla shows up he smashes some things. We follow him around, and then we destroy him with conventional weapons. Yep. But there is what are is there any other nuclear compo- things that we should be knowing about this film? Do uh, they ever do they ever discuss trying to nuke Godzilla? I don't remember that.
2: You know what? I don't think they do um, because it takes place in New York City, and the whole purpose of the movie is trying to save New York City somehow. Okay. Strangely enough, the damage from Godzilla is pretty limited. No. His size, I feel like, changes consistently throughout the movie. Yeah. All of a sudden, he can fit down, like, uh, the avenue of the Americas just fine. And then in the next, he's clawing his way through the Cly- Chrysler building, you know? Like, I mean, in, he lays
0: eggs in, in the Madison center of Madison Square, Square Garden, Garden. Yeah. Which has a dome.
2: Yeah, which, like, somehow he doesn't breach the dome of, right? And the one... the So, like, I, I'm sorry. Like, I think this is a, a great early 90s film. Okay, It's raked in more money and sold more tickets than any Godzilla film. Yeah, but half of that was you. That's fair. Uh, Like you, I remember the merchandising. I had lots of Godzilla action figures from this movie. Mm -hmm. A couple of things that do happen, though, is that Most importantly, this was supposed to be a trilogy. This Mm. was supposed to be the first in a trilogy. Roland Emmerich gave us other great
0: movies like
2: Independence Day.
0: Which we've covered on this podcast because there's a lot of nuclear things in there.
2: Yeah, this is peak disaster movie period in the United States, right? you got Volcano, Dante's Inferno, Independence Day. They're always looking for the next bigger and badder disaster movie. Despite the fact that this is one of the best-selling Godzilla movies of all time, it is so critically panned... Just in the press, right? This is before the blogosphere was a thing. This is before Twitter or Facebook. Critics give this movie so much flack, despite that it doubles its gross of its budget, right? The, the budget's like $130 million, which is still a lot compared to the modern Godzilla films. Mm-hmm. It takes in twice as much money. So, I mean, like, viable success. But it's so panned critically that they say, no, nah, I don't think yeah. and, uh And it just becomes a daytime cartoon yeah Toho, the original Godzilla people actually revoke the Hollywood license to Sony Pictures critical reception they didn't like the the people didn't like Godzilla now they actually redub the monster to Zilla so it's not Godzilla it becomes Zilla, which becomes like this other creature in the universe in like Godzilla Final Wars he shows up and stuff and yeah. it's just something for the other monsters to kick around.
0: I'm going to talk about Godzilla Final Wars later on. I okay. love Godzilla Final Wars.
2: Yeah. But I mean so it 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 has such a tainted legacy and and part of it is is that I think that Roland Emmerich spends too much time with the babies and stuff oh, yeah. it's like running from they, but it's it's that same thing. It's the ever-loving optimism of the infantrymen. They're like we need something that like John Reno's boys can fight we can't just have this be a giant monster the whole time. We need something personal to get involved, and so you have this thing where it's just tons of velociraptors chasing John Renault around, basically.
0: Yeah, I'm sure that was a combination of God's uh, Jurassic Park. Yeah, it yeah.
1: looks it it looks exactly like Jurassic Park yeah. in the movie. You're like, wait, is that what I is that what I ended up? There's watching some great here?
0: practical effects in there, though, guys. But I it mean, just makes you want to watch Jurassic Park.
1: Yeah, it, it does. It's... And I I was disappointed by the ending. It mm-hmm. was a little bit anticlimactic. God... It's a cliffhanger.
2: They're setting it up for. Well, training. So how do oh, they, no, destroy, well, not, they destroy they destroy Godzilla? That,
1: well, the, it's the destruction of Godzilla that I think is anticlimactic. Yeah. Godzilla ends up on the Brooklyn Bridge, which doesn't collapse under the yeah, weight yeah. of Godzilla, and then is destroyed by F-18 fighter jets.
2: Yeah, and Amram missiles like, yeah. you know, yeah. like... And
1: no people talk. I was just like, "What? What do you mean? This is like you we're talking about it's supposed to be like this destruction film, right? But there's no destruction yeah. at all."
0: Also, does it it doesn't kind of has like little arms. Right? <laughs> Rex he, and... he
1: looks like T Rex. So, do? do you remember Godzilla in the Rugrats? Do you remember when mm-hmm. the Rugrats included? That's what this mm-hmm. Godzilla looks like, except like real life.
0: Reptar, mean, referring to raptar. Reptar. Reptar, yeah. there we go. Reptar. reptar. Yeah. Godzilla
1: looks like if uh, Reptar was not a cartoon.
0: Oh, funny. Well, so this was uh, like you said, they revoked the license or not allowed. Said you can't play with our toys anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it wasn't until 2014 did Hollywood get to have another attempt at this? Yep. Uh, so this is a I'll take over because I've seen the last main one. So Godzilla 2014, when 2014 came out, you know, it did pretty well in the theater. It was considered to be uh, a, a good assessment of like the film. Like yeah. critics didn't love it, but they thought it was like, yeah, all right, we're back on track. And then in addition to the final one that came out later earlier this year in 2019. Uh, so I'll do my best here to uh, to run through... Uh, the plot, what but matters, because this these last three are nuke central. Like they're filled with nuclear weapon content, nuclear energy content, right? Uh, so if, I think it's really worth getting into. And
2: if I hadn't said it already, that you know, all the movies coming up to this point, where we sort of go back to the nuke basics, they really get off of that message, right? right? They become about other things that that Japan and that the world is more concerned about pollution, uh, you know. Like whether or not we've become less spiritual as a society, you know, all sorts of stuff. They deal with lots of different things. Or,
1: or so. if you manage to continue connecting the nuke message to Godzilla, they, you know, make it not that scary. Yeah. They make they make it manageable, nukes, right, right? They make nukes manageable, or or they make them the answer to the problem, to the you know, greater Russian right. evil. Which <laughs> is
2: a great point, like you already brought up, Tim, that Japan. Um, starts managing the atom nuclear power becomes a very important industry for them. And so they sort of lean away from that
0: as an existential threat to the Japanese islands. And he always, he always still has the same basic characteristics. He's slightly radioactive. Uh, he atomic breath, atomic breath, um, largely indestructible, those kinds of things. Uh, and that definitely carries through to the 2014 movie, uh, which was directed by Gareth Edwards. Um, he, has, he actually does have a bit of a nuclear history to himself. He was a digital effects artist on a movie about Hiroshima. Uh, and he also was very famous for Rogue One, uh, one of the new Star Wars films, uh, which I argued on a podcast and in, in an article for the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, you know, deploys nuclear imagery pretty explicitly uh, in, in that movie. Oh, yeah. So this American reboot tells us about why Godzilla is actually just one of many ancient creatures called Titans uh, who feed off of radiation. And they thrived back in the day when the planet was new and radiation was everywhere. Don't really know what that means. Maybe cosmic radiation because our atmosphere wasn't really clear yet. I don't think they mean like, yeah, they were just uranium deposits as far as the eyes can see. Um, It probably was some sort of cosmic radiation type thing. Uh, And then when that went away, they went to sleep. So the U.S. government had always known about Godzilla, and it started to pop back up in the early 1950s, 1940s. After
2: Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Right.
0: Right. Yeah. And it turns out that the 1954 nuclear test, the Castle Series test, the Bravo shot, Castle Bravo, was not a nuclear test by itself. It was an attempt to kill Godzilla. You know, that thing that created Godzilla in the first place, the, the source of profound sadness for thousands of people in Japan and the Marshall Islands, significant propagation for the development of the comic, uh, you know, Cold War arms race. Nope, it was just a very benevolent attempt to destroy Godzilla. Right, and they, they used Ken Watanabe to parrot this.
2: All those nuclear bomb tests in the 50s.
1: Not tests. They were trying to kill it. An ancient alpha predator.
0: Millions of years older than mankind. From an age when the Earth was ten times more radioactive than it is today. This
1: animal, and others like it, consumed this radiation as a food source. They were
2: trying to kill it, you know? Um, And and that is in my mind pretty bad
0: retconning. Oh yeah. yeah. It's
1: it's simultaneously a little funny and also really really offensive. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> but only probably people who are either die-hard Godzilla fans or people that are nuclear nerds would ever care or pick up on that. Right? I'm not trying to be right, no, pretentious, but, but like
1: You know what I think this reminds me of and I actually just thought about this yesterday because it's big on social media right now is that um series of beers that are mm-hmm. named after Did you all see this on Twitter? so there's a series of beer that have come out uh beer cans that are like nuclear themes there's a brewery somewhere i'm not sure where it is that is creating they're everywhere yeah. uh, yeah. atomic themed beers is this but the one, is this
0: the manhattan one Patrick one in texas
1: they're all named after things related to castle bravo specifically mm. though like the names of the beers are necessary evil and bikini atoll <sighs> Yeah, and I think one of them is literally named Castle Bravo. So there's five or six of them, and they are all Castle Bravo incident-themed. This
0: is the Edward Edward Teller Memorial Brewery.
1: Um, So it's just like, oh, this is kitschy, but also
0: not great. Not pitch perfect.
1: Yeah,
0: Yeah, well, so this movie in 2014, it basically says that the Titans were napping peacefully, uh, but when humanity intervened with nuclear weapons and also, importantly, nuclear energy, nuclear reactors, nuclear power systems, they woke them up uh, with a dinner bell because that's right. They like to eat radiation. So we see uh, uranium mining operation in the Philippines. It disrupts and wakes up two what they call mutos. Are those from that term from other Godzilla movies or just what they created for this one? I think they created it for this. Mm-hmm. And it technically is
2: massive, unidentified terrestrial organism.
0: Yep. And they uh, they wake up and they go to what they say attacks the closest nuclear power plant in Japan, even though there were closer reactors in Taiwan and China, but don't worry about that. Uh, and they... Uh, Go to a place where we get Brian Cranston, the actor. He plays a plant safety officer, and his family is living there. Uh, unfortunately, Cranston's wife is killed in the attack. He goes very distant from his son, whose name is Ford. Uh, but he becomes really paranoid because he thinks there's some sort of monster thing out there. Uh, we cut to ten years later. Ford himself, the child, has grown up to be an EOD technician. Uh, he had an explosive ordnance disposal guy. Who These people who are trained in rendering safe explosives, including... Nuclear weapons potentially, but also chemical, biological, conventional explosives, and he follows his dad because he meets up with his dad. I think he takes him out of jail, and they go to where the nuclear plant was because the dad is convinced that what the government is telling everybody that this this plant is no longer safe; it's leaking radiation. You know, there's um, tons of. Direct parallels to the Fukushima accident from 2011. Mm -hmm. Um, But so they get there and it turns out, no, it's actually, everything's safe. But there are these MUTOs that are still there and they're in a cocoon type thing feeding off of the radiation.
2: Right. They've actually, they sucked it dry. They say it's completely safe. Good timing.
0: I mean, they literally, they they show up when they're done. Yep. And there's this thing called Operation Monarch. Uh, which is project this Monarch? Yeah. Project Monarch. Uh, Monarch is a secret organization that is designed to study and, if if necessary, destroy these particular monsters. Is Monarch from anything previously, or is that a new thing that was created no, for these movies? No, most of the original
2: ones deal with Interpol or other government organizations <laughs> huh. that Real are around. Yeah, that are sort of around the edges um, and the Japanese Self Defense Force. So Monarch is is a creation for this timeline.
0: Well, so the monsters uh, wake up because they're done eating now and they're ready to you know, get on with their life. Yeah. One of them is, yeah. So one yeah. of them wakes up uh, and it ends up killing Brian Cranston, and Ford, kind of as part part revenge, part trying to solve the problem, joins Monarch, and their lead scientist, same name as one of the original lead scientists, our friend with the eye patch, Dr. Serizawa. is he meant to be a direct relation to the original movie? Or is- Yes. Uh, well, it, I mean,
2: sort of tongue in cheek. Yes. They, they, his father and very noticeably they talk about it in the 2014 movie was a Hiroshima survivor. Right. And he carries that pocket watch that stopped on the exact time that the bomb fell on Hiroshima. Mm -hmm. And I always took it to be that. Like, obviously the timeline is different, but it's a direct callback to that original hero from the first movie.
0: Okay. Was it meant to be that his dad fought Godzilla or just knew about Godzilla or I don't know. I, I – my
2: audience brain was like, oh, his dad was that guy. Okay. Even though obviously in that movie he doesn't have
0: a son that we know of. Okay. Um, so.
1: And he dies before he and his love interest can. Yeah. yeah. So.
0: Hmm. Maybe there's – Something else going on that's a little too risque for that, that original Japanese audience. Uh, so these new MUTOs, they're running around. We kind of get glimpses of them. It's apparently radar can't detect them. Uh, satellites don't work when they're in space because they, they release EMPs. They're constantly shooting out electromagnetic pulses uh, they start eating Russian submarines to get at the the sweet, juicy submarine uh, warheads. Fuel rods. Yeah, trying to, trying to get to the fuel rods. But also, we see at one point in the movie, it has a... Actual like SLBM, a submarine launched ballistic missile, and it's like chewing the top of it, and I thought it was funny because it was it looked like he was trying to get to the center of a tootsie roll pop, <laughs> uh, and I made a joke on Twitter. It's like how many licks does it take to get to the center of a, an, L- an SLBM? One, two, EMP. Yeah. Because then they basically EMPs keep going off. We don't know what to do. We find the other Muto has actually been stored in Yucca Mountain, yeah, where we store our nuclear waste. But we don't because
2: it doesn't exist, right? But yeah, it's not actually storing anything.
0: Uh, well, it's not storing high-level radioactive waste, right. but whatever it eats, something. But
2: it's never been completed, right? The project yeah. was sort of left off Congress.
0: Well, it got it's you know no reason to complete it now because the Muto has eaten all of the radioactive waste, so it's all good now.
2: And then it's, it destroys Las Vegas.
0: Exactly, it's reprocessed the nuclear waste into destruction, yeah. uh, and it's starting to attack uh Las Vegas and all right so the military comes up with this plan they're going to use a nuclear warhead both as bait to draw in the mutos but also to kill them with the quote the sheer force of the blast of a megaton yield nuclear weapon you know someone one of the military people says that it will make the castle bravo test look like a firecracker
2: right it this is my favorite line in the movie it says we're talking megatons, not kilotons, you know, like it's dialing yield, you know. <laughs>
0: well, Rachel, what was the megaton size of the Castle Bravo nuclear test? It was fifteen
1: megatons. Which
0: was the largest ever nuclear test the United States has ever conducted. Right. And the largest warhead that's on an I C B M is like four hundred and fifty five kilotons. Kilotons. Yeah. We we had we had some megaton bombs, but they were they're They'd all been retired. They were bombs you would drop from an airplane. They were never on missiles because of how accurate our missiles are. If you can hit the thing very accurately, you do not need a very large warhead yield. If you can't, you have to create, you know, like it is. And, you know, close is good in uh, horseshoes and hand grenades and megaton nuclear bombs. So I I thought that was very odd. So the movie basically has a a Minuteman 3 missile. And which, again, we talked about never had megaton bombs. Closer to 500 um but yeah so that's what they end up deciding to use and they put that on a a train and they try to get it to i think san francisco
2: Francisco, it's very obvious to me i don't want to like dunk on these screenwriters here Somebody sat down and had a conversation with a nukes person, but I feel like they were only sort of half listening. they were like, <laughs> "No, that's a good. Oh yeah, no, that's a good idea. Like we could use an ICBM for this, or like, like." And somebody clearly brought up, "Well, you know, we're in this conversation right now, and on the Pentagon about dial yield weapons, and we're Oh like, 'Oh, they're military jargon. Dial yield, okay. you know, like megatons, not kilotons. Like, you know, but but it's like it's just not accurate. Like, but it sounds great." You know, like the mo- it sounds good in the context of the movie, but it's definitely not accurate to what we know and, and talk about today. It's, it's a little bit all over the place. So,
0: Doctor Surazawa, he actually has a different opinion about this. Despite whatever yield the bombs will be, he thinks that Godzilla is not something that's going to end the world or anything. It's actually part of the natural order. It's trying to restore balance. And also, at this point, Godzilla has not shown himself. He just there, there's this guess. Because they're still worried about the MUTO. Dr. Sirizawa just has... It's almost like halfway through the movie. Dr. Sirizawa just has this opinion. You know... I rem- Godzilla, that was a thing back in the 50s. We haven't heard of him for a while. I bet he'll show up and try to fight the Mutos. And sure enough, he does. We see him starting to swim through the ocean. and well, he-, he shows
2: up in Hawaii, right? Yeah.
0: Like, like the, the monsters,
2: the Mutos go after this Russian submarine that's off of Hawaii for some reason. Then there's a great scene where they think it's a tsunami coming, and it's actually Godzilla coming ashore, and he causes
0: a tsunami, sort of. Another connection to Fukushima, which yeah. was the reason why that accident occurred. The earthquake plus the... The tsunami,
2: um, but Godzilla shows up and he fights the first Muto before we know that there's a second one, mm-hmm. and it's it's an awesome moment fighting at the airport. He steps on a bunch of jumbo jets as people are watching, and mm-hmm. I love I love this scene from a movie standpoint because they see the Muto attacking this train with Ford and this yeah. kid, this Japanese kid on it. And everybody's screaming and screaming, and then all of a sudden everything goes silent, mm-hmm. and Godzilla walks into the frame, and then like has that giant roar. And I was sitting in the theater with my
0: dad, and we looked at each other like, this is metal. Like, <laughs> like
2: we, were, we were so down for that
0: moment. Rachel, what do you think of the design of the Godzilla in this movie? Because he looks different. He doesn't look like an iguana, but he doesn't necessarily look like the original Godzilla
1: I think that d- the design of Godzilla is getting better from 1998 to the newest movie in, yeah, in 2019. Um, and in this movie, it's starting to progress. I think he still looks a little dinosaurish, Like, he mm. still looks like an overgrown nuclear T-Rex, right? Yeah. And so he's still kind of got that Jurassic Park vibe. But... I don't hate that. I mean, I think it's cool that in the original movies, he's really gross looking and Mm -hmm. like you would Mm -hmm. absolutely expect something that's been irradiated to look like that. But I also really love Jurassic Park, so yeah. I can't hate on the fact that he looks like a dinosaur. He looks
0: like a Jurassic Park T Rex, but like he hit the gym.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Oh, he is huge. Yeah. He is huge in this movie. So he
2: was definitely noted for being the largest Godzilla yet, like scale wise. Mm-hmm. But my favorite thing is Japanese audiences really didn't like him. Mm-hmm. And the criticism was, he's obviously an American Godzilla. Look at how beefy he is. <laughs> like they fat shamed Godzilla. I remember there was this thing at the time. They also kind of gave him gills, which I thought was cool. Yeah. Uh, you know, like he can breathe underwater, obviously.
1: You know, one of the things that I both like, (laughs) like, and am critical of, um, about how Godzilla changes over the years is that he gets kind of cute, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, you don't, you don't hate him? He you, smiles and dances. Why, you like root for him a little bit because dances, yeah. you're like, I could I could totally hang out and cuddle with Godzilla. <laughs> like,
2: yeah, he has a child friendly son at one point. Yeah. Manila, right? Uh he he definitely break dances with Ultraman <laughs> once upon a time, you know. He gets super campy. But then they're like, let's bring it back and make him sort
0: of terrifying and more monster-like, right? Right, exactly. And you'd mentioned the sizes that he was at. So there's this great chart out there where Godzilla's height over the years. So in 1954, he was just about like 150 feet tall. In 1991, 95, he gets up to 300. And then back down again, as you mentioned, for the 98 movie, back to like – just under 200, but then 2014, he's at 500 feet tall. He's a he's pretty big uh, in this one. So so in the movie, uh the one the 2014 film, we see this Minuteman ICBM being transported by train, and Ford volunteers as an EOD tech. Hey, does anyone know actually how to handle these things? Which I thought was funny because there should be an EOD tech on this team. Like, did they not think about that originally? But he volunteers. Uh, the MUTO shows up and steals the warhead, uh, and it's going to use the warhead to start to, like, start a family with the other MUTO, and they'll use the nuclear warhead to, like, a something that the larva can eat. And then they say that if, it, if they start reproducing, the world is done.
2: Also, they arm this warhead, like, before they're in, like, operation area, So when the Muto gets a hold of it, it's already armed and ready to go. And so the the whole premise of the movie is that, one, like you said, they're going to lure it using this because they're attracted to to highly enriched uranium or plutonium, I guess. And then two is that once they have them lured to it, they're going to drive it out in the middle of San Francisco, off of San Francisco, 20 miles off the coast, and then detonate it and kill them. But for some inexplicable reason, and also there's this whole thing about analog versus digital uh, arming devices, they, right?
0: They, because you know, ICBMs are missiles. They're not. They, they have a very particular set of conditions that they'll go off on. Right. It, they're not. It, there's no like timer. You're gonna have the okay. It's gonna be an airburst. It'll explode at this height, and that's what you it did. It's not a timer or any of these things. But they just the OD tech is able to attach some kind of device to it that gives you the classic red countdown that we get in all these bad nuclear movies.
2: But, it, and, and yeah, it's like this baby's analog, you know, and like, it, like takes it licking, keeps on ticking, you know, something like that. Like they really say this, but also for some reason they don't just demate the warhead. They bring the right. whole missile that's, along. That you can easily do that. Yeah. Which is, which is this weird, this is what I'm saying. The script writers were like, yeah, nuclear missile. That's iconic. We'll take one of those along, you know, like not, not just the warhead. Like they bring the whole Minuteman missile with them.
0: And yeah, they do, and I, and I think the missile eventually kind of breaks apart, and it's just the the the, the front of it. It's like the bit of the nose cone. Um, we never actually see just the reentry vehicle, but we see the front of the missile. Basically, the, the, mo- the movie you know goes a little bit further. They get to San Francisco. All the lights are shut off because the Mutos are doing EMPs we eventually get to the point where like Ford's job now is to find the missile, get it disarm it. He's not able to do that so he puts it on a boat.
2: With an epic you're, you're skipping over another great scene here is an epic halo jump scene Oh right? yeah, where they have to insert and like one of the big criticisms of this movie is that it actually doesn't show the monsters fighting all that much, right? Like yeah. It's somewhat like Jurassic Park again or Jaws. It takes that very Steven Spielberg approach where it don't show the monster. And they don't show the monster that much. Godzilla is barely in this film. six, seven,
0: eight minutes pretty much total.
2: Yeah, so but there are this really cool scene where they have to halo jump in to get to the missile and you can sort of, in this cloud, you can see them fighting as they're dropping down through it, right?
0: Yeah, Godzilla, they have a a terrific fight, uh, which is kind of a combination of mixed martial arts because of the types of things that Godzilla can do nowadays. He kind of like grapples with the, the Mutos a bit and then, so a combination of that plus his atomic breath He's able to kill both of the MUTOs. Uh, The EMP effect, I guess, wears off because the city's lights come back on. That's not how EMP works. Um, (laughs) EMPs destroy the electronics. It doesn't just cause them to not work. And then the movie puts the the nuclear weapon on the boat. The boat kind of gets on autopilot. It goes out to the bay and then explodes. Although I think it's just kind of fun here. This megaton yield bomb, which they say... Uh, makes it 20 miles offshore in five minutes yeah and that the only boat that i know that does that is the speedboat from thunder in paradise uh, <laughs> with hulk hogan uh that so yeah so that's that's that movie uh ford is reunited with his his wife and his child uh but also a child in this movie it's not really that necessarily important and then godzilla retreats into the ocean after having done his job two thunderous applause right People yeah. love
2: it. Yeah, people like Godzilla. They think, oh, he saved the city. Even though at the start of this encounter, they're terrified of him, and there's a bunch of Abrams and uh, Arlie Burke destroyers shooting at him, right? Um, so he goes from being antagonist to defender in the span of, like, 30 minutes. I, again, go figure, I love this movie, and I know that you guys don't as
0: nukes people. Like, Yeah, it's not – I don't love it. It didn't do a lot for me, but it's got a lot to talk about.
1: Yeah, I I think the reason that I I didn't like it other than the fact that they tease you with Brian Cranston and then he dies pretty early <laughs> on in the movie, which why would they do that? I, you know, throughout the movie you have this the military decides the, the military officials decide that nuclear weapons is going to be their response to Godzilla and you have scientists telling them you shouldn't do that. That's mm-hmm. a bad idea. You're you're going to cause problems that you're not thinking of. And they don't realize that the scientists were right all along until they mess up and Mm -hmm. lose the nuclear weapon. And then they're like, oh God, they were right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the Um, the
0: nuclear warhead goes from being a a savior to the villain— to then being a, a baby shower gift, you know, <laughs> uh, for the monsters, and then it go back to being I mean, a baby that needs to be protected,
1: mm-hmm. you know,
0: to get it out to sea and everything. Mm-hmm. It really does kind of go back and forth. It's so and, interesting.
1: And then the destruction at the end. I mean, the, ultimately, the nuclear weapon does deploy, and there's really not that much that happens. Yeah. Twenty miles off the coast of San Francisco, and magically, San Francisco is totally fine. Really, suffers winds. <laughs> yeah, yeah. suffers no consequences. There's you know, the fish are fine, the environment's fine.
0: Baby I always like to think that at the end of that movie you really didn't need an EOD technician because he didn't do anything. He really needed Quint from Jaws. Yeah. <laughs> which is another, I would argue, nuclear movie. We did an episode on that because of the story that they tell about the USS Indianapolis uh-huh. and the and the bomb bringing yeah. the Hiroshima bomb. Uh, that is super interesting. So we, if you like Jaws and want to talk about nuke stuff, we did an episode on that as well on the podcast.
2: I just want to take a moment to defend this movie from right. a nuke standpoint. Okay? Uh, like... Critical reception aside, I think this is actually a pretty good nuke movie. Despite the fact, as I've already said, it has lots of nuke problems and inaccuracy. The reason being is that even when used for good intentions, the nuke is the bad guy of this film. They're like less worried about the MUTOs and Godzilla at the end than they are about this megaton bomb that's going to blow up all of San Francisco. And so the entire military operation goes from trying to stop Godzilla and the Mutos to trying to stop the bomb that they've triggered and I love that message once these things are out there even if they're used to try to protect us once they exist you can no longer trust in their
0: benevolence It's really a deceptively tricky like they trick people into a, what I want a Godzilla movie and you get there and you get in a nuke movie yeah and in a weird way you didn't necessarily expect. Right, and I mean the the real the thing that I loved about this movie is that the
2: threat is nukes at the end. You know, yes, Godzilla and the monsters are tearing the city apart, but it's the nuclear bomb that our hero, our protagonist, you know, mm-hmm. Ford is trying to stop from from going off. And even this guy, even you know, for, we don't get much backstory on, but even this highly qualified EOD guy can't do
0: anything to stop it. Right? They have to just get it out of the city. Where where it doesn't do a good job is I'm always cu- curious by this. So the Muto is hungry enough to follow one single Minuteman ICBM uh, warhead, but from Las Vegas to San Francisco. Uh, but he's not hungry, or she's not hungry enough to follow. Just go a little bit north towards where all of our ICBM fields are at, because yeah. there's a whole you know tasty spread of things that they could be digging around up there. It's like it's just a you know, we, uh, yes, a plutonium uranium you know thermonuclear bomb has a lot of radiation, but not kind of when it's just sitting there, mm-hmm. uh, when it's it's in a it's it's set in a fi- configuration where it's not in a supercritical. Hey, that's the name of the podcast. Like, it's not it's in it's not in a supercritical configuration, so it's not giving off as much radiation as it does when it's detonated, or when it's in a supercritical configuration where you have all of a lot more uh, fission actually happening. Right. It's at a level where you could hold you know the warhead it's not super yeah, safe but right you can hold, you can hold a plutonium
2: it. pit in your hand right like, it,
0: exactly yeah and, and it's not going to give you the kind of dosage that it would be if if it was in a super critical configuration so which is where you get the really nasty stories about you know slogan and all of those people during their, their manhattan projects
2: well right. and so like like the the submarine reactor makes sense. Like if you yeah, want to take up a bunch of radiation, because that, like, that's actually going off. Yeah. Yeah, it's actually right. It's it's actually spreading radiation around. That makes a ton of sense. Uh, that this is just another sort of you know screenplay writer thing. It's like oh well, they're both made of uranium, right? Like you right. Know, like like there is. This scientific nuance to how things, how radiation reacts, what it actually means, you know, what type of radiation is it, what's
0: happening. So this is Godzilla, King of the Monsters from 2019. It is a direct sequel to the 2014 Film. And steals the title from
2: the original 1956 Americanization of Gojira. Oh, it's the same title? Okay. Yeah, Godzilla King and the Monsters.
0: Well, um, which is funny because there's no other monsters in that movie except, I guess, maybe the Americans, <laughs> uh, depending on the perspective you really got there. Uh, so this movie picks up five years later after the 2014 film. Uh, Monarch, the place that the organization that is trying to track and study all of these titans, uh, they've been keeping tabs on over a dozen other Titans, and of course, you can try to guess some of the ones that are there. King Kong is there somewhere there's a one with three heads there's a giant moth type thing. people that we're probably going to see later in the film, but they're Godzilla mo- monsters from previous Godzilla things, a couple new ones, like the Mutos there i don 't think Zilla is there the one group of scientists is trying to use this thing called the Orca, which replicates certain sounds, which their plan is that they can use to control. The Titans. And this is because of how does this work? It's some sort of alpha prey thing. Right. It's
2: some interesting MacGuffin that they come up with. Because in 2014, they discover halfway through the movie that the two Mutos are talking to one another. That these things that they thought was actually seismic activity are actually bioacoustics. And then. Bioacoustics. In, yeah, and then in this movie, it jumps to all of these things emit some sort of bioacoustic signature, and they're all talking to each other across the globe, apparently. And, uh, certain bioacoustics can actually wake them up from their dormant states. Mm-hmm. Something like that.
0: And the the family that we are introduced to in the movie, it's a father, um, um, a mother, and a daughter. And there was originally a son, but the son died in the 2014 movies attack in san francisco which
2: is something that i really like yeah that was nice yeah because that i mean not nice but it was nice of the movie right the opening scene of the movie is coach from friday night lights uh (laughs) screaming andrew you know they're looking for their son you can see godzilla and one of the mudos fighting in the background and it is terrifying and it is powerful and even though all the citizens of san francisco clap for this monster at the end yeah it has clearly led to the deaths of tons of family members and civilians. And, and San Francisco is trashed from this, right?
0: Yeah, it's, it, absolutely. And it, it really destroys the family. Uh, the father is kind of off by himself doing you know, some other research with wolves and taking photos of wolves. He, becau- and,
2: he says he becomes
0: an alcoholic. Yeah. Or, yeah. Uh, and the mother... Uh, And the daughter, the daughter is um, Eleven from Stranger Things. Millie Bobby Brown. Yep. Uh, The mother creates the orca, and she's at this monarch base uh, in China monitoring Mothra. And, of course, at that point, we have to introduce some conflict, and it is Tywin Lannister from Game of Thrones. (laughs) eco terrorist Tywin Lannister. Right. So Charles Dance, the actor, comes in, and it turns out he's actually been working with the mother Uh, Because they have this plan of unleashing the Titans uh, so that they can replenish the Earth. Basically destroy humanity, which is going to destroy itself. It's a lot similar to a number of nuclear weapon movies that we covered on this podcast. A lot of them happen to be Mission Impossible movies. Uh, The most recent Mission Impossible movie, Fallout, plus Ghost Protocol, Mm -hmm. have scientists that want to destroy the world with nuclear weapons to then replenish itself so it will not destroy itself.
1: Thanos, right? Yeah, yeah, it's um, actually a a Thanos. Yeah. yeah. It's good.
2: the Thanos
0: plot, right?
2: Like right. it like humans are a virus or you know overpopulation is the biggest problem and we need to cut down on these on these things and and these titans will restore order. But I love all the news footage that's cut in. it's <laughs> like it's like mass beaching of whales caused by hunting for Godzilla, you know, like sonar and then it's uh it's uh greenhouse
0: gases and climate change and refugee you know
1: refugee crisis yeah. and yeah.
0: It all works really well because Thanos is from the planet Titan. Oh, look at that. Look at this. The big problem, however, is that they decide to unleash the super monster who turns out is not actually a Titan. You know, it's King Ghidorah and he's from space. He's an alien. He's not part of the natural order of Earth. He's there to disrupt it. Right. Right. I love how just quickly they gloss over the fact that he's an alien, yeah. too. They're like, 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 oh, in this world where titans are real, oh, well, alien life, sure, yeah, let's cool. go with that, yeah. And they call him Monster Zero. Uh, he can shoot lightning bolts out of his mouth, he can regenerate wounds... And He causes tropical storms. And he is now the Alpha. So he is calling all of the other Titans to destroy other cities. Fortunately, the U.S. military and Monarch, uh, the dad joins forces with Monarch. And we see the military deploying dozens and dozens and dozens of really advanced V-22 Ospreys. Yeah. These helicopters slash airplanes, uh, uh, they track down the eco-terrorists. They try to stop them. And they do try to also use the oxygen destroyer. It comes back but it's completely ineffective against Monster Zero, but it does incredibly damage Godzilla. So this is the point of the movie where Godzilla is... They, they they know where he is. So we get Dr. Shirazawa back, Ken Watanabe. He's back. They they go on a submarine. They track down Godzilla to his underground, like, radioactive lair. And it turns out that people may have heard about this crazy theory called hollow earth, which is that the earth is actually hollow and that How the is. UFOs travel in and out of the hollow earth. It's essentially like a flat earth type conspiracy. This movie says, no, that's actually real. And that's where Godzilla's home was. And he's living in this, like, super radioactive home near the center of the earth
2: right they they bring this up for those of you following along with uh, universal's new monster verse like they actually bring this up in kong skull island hmm. right that that skull island is this entryway into the hollow earth and i remember at the time being like this is so silly like and now though Having gone back and looked at all these Showa-era Godzilla movies, it's like, okay, like anything is acceptable in the weird, campy world of Godzilla, so
0: this is totally fine. How do you feel about Hollow Earth, Rachel?
1: I mean, I definitely worked for the movie, honestly. I thought it was one of the just more interesting aspects of it. I wasn't expecting it at all, because up to this point, it hasn't really been... Uh, obviously part I, of the franchise. Have you seen
0: Kong Skull Island?
1: No, I have not. That,
0: that's one that I wanted to cover because they actually do reference a couple of times that we tried to nuke that Island a number of times for testing, but no, it was actually to destroy Godzilla. So they use that. That's where that trope came from in the movie. Right. The other thing
2: that I think is interesting is that they take a, a submarine, some unknown class of submarine uh, yeah. down and they get sucked into a vortex and then somehow are 600 miles from where they started and I was sitting there the whole time, like, does pressure not work in this world anymore? Yeah. How is this submarine still here? And, but they go to this like ancient Minoan civilization that I guess is Atlantis or something. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah and, sure, yeah. And and it's underwater somehow. And Godzilla, that's where his like home is. He chills out there, and he's he's licking his wounds. Yeah, and, and it's horrendously
0: radioactive down there somehow. And they can't even get drones to fly there because the radioactivity destroys them so quickly. Get like how. The roof of the Chernobyl plant destroys Joker. Yeah, the the bulldozer drone that gets destroyed. Uh, so they decide, all right. Well, someone's going to have to volunteer to jumpstart Godzilla with radioactivity. So they have a nuclear bomb, which I guess is just on the submarine. It must have been a nuclear, uh, you know, well, a they, boomer. They say they, they say rocket. when they're in the when they're in the fleet.
2: Uh, Coach, uh, I don't know what his name is, but but yeah, I'm gonna call him Coach from now on. Uh, says, "How many nukes do you have?" Oh yeah, uh, and then they they take a warhead off of something. So at least they're not taking a whole missile this right. time. But they take some weird random
0: chrome warhead, and uh, they and hold it, and it looks like the original, um, you know, fissile material that you see that picture for the one that was used during either the Trinity test or on the Hiroshima bomb. Right. It actually does look like the little, like, lunch pail handle.
1: Yeah.
0: Who volunteers? But son of Hiroshima survivor, uh, Dr. Shirazawa, volunteers to go down into the Hollow Earth and jumpstart Godzilla with a nuclear device. Uh, He makes peace with his enemy. I can't tell if the enemy was Godzilla or nuclear weapons, which charges Godzilla into even a bigger creature that can now take on Monster Zero, uh, along with U.S. military. And they need to do this pretty quickly because Godzilla is becoming, quote, uh, super critical and, like, really, he's gonna go super critical and he's gonna <laughs> explode.
2: Thermonuclear. And I love my favorite Bradley Whitford line. Bradley Whitford's also in this movie. <laughs> is like somebody else says, Does anybody think that Godzilla's been working out or something? And Bradley <laughs> Whitford says, Shirazawa, juice that lizard, you know? Like,
0: and, like, cause he's like roided out now. Godzilla goes to fight Monster Zero, but even this super roided out radioactive version of him is not strong enough but mothra comes back turns out mothra's there mothra and godzilla are close friends they maybe even a uh, bit of you know like a uh, like partners relationship of some kind some i don't know how that works i don't need to see that fanfic but, and even the like the captain
2: one of the one of the army captains says so are they like
0: a thing <laughs> and he's like does
2: anybody else think that's
0: weird? You know, like they're trying to they're trying to ship them. But so Mothra sacrifices itself to to help the fight. But monsters in Monster Zero is ultimately defeated when Godzilla does a number of things, like he rips the heads off, like and then like slurps down a couple of them, and then shoots the radioactive blast. Uh, and part of it is because Godzilla is emitting this like some sort of like radioactive blast wave which is actually
2: a really cool scene he like melts everything around
0: Mm -hmm. he melts
2: Boston and the Red Sox stadium like just completely melts like they they see like a bus like stop melting everything around him just completely fries which I actually thought was a pretty cool scene
0: well I thought I thought it was cool too as a Los Angeles sports fan (laughs) uh, (laughs) who hates Boston sports I'm perfectly fine with seeing that melt better than the Dodgers meltdown in Fenway Park so yeah, so eventually you know Godzilla survives his his, his meltdown, and uh, all of the other Titans are helping the environment grow and flourish because of their radioactivity, and and everything's great. And that's kind of how the how the movie ends. Two two things uh, going
2: back to the ending. One is the last shot of the movie proper is like a petroglyph of Godzilla fighting King Kong, mm-hmm. right? That's the very last scene in the movie. And then I don't remember if we stayed after the credits, but when I watched this again last night, uh, there is an after the credits scene, and it's where Tywin Lannister goes back to Mexico uh, for where Godzilla had previously ripped one of the King Ghidorah heads mm-hmm. off, and he buys the head of King Ghidorah. Uh, okay. So much like in the original movies there's like some dastardly force that wants to
0: like remake King Ghidorah to use for their own aims. We'll have to talk later on about what you think the next movies are going to be. Are we going to be introduced now to to Mecha Godzilla? Uh, are we going to be introduced to the actual space aliens?
2: We know the next one is Godzilla versus King Kong. Yeah, we know that's happening. And it may have some new
0: content. We'll have to see about that.
1: So one of my things about this movie that is actually not nuclear-related that Jeff really wants me to talk about, um, and it's it's really important to talk about, is the fact that this movie, out of all of the movies, is pretty woke. Um, there's <laughs> so much representation in this movie. There are Japanese actors and actresses. There are other people of color. There are women I mean, in really important military roles, yeah. not just this woman as mother trying to avenge her dead son, right? Mm-hmm. But also, like, women who are flying fighter jets and... getting killed in fighter jets. And getting killed and in fighter, jets. Killed yeah. in fighter yeah. jets. And women who are making important military decisions. And, I mean, even mom as avenging her dead son role is a scientist. I think that was really cool for me. And also, 11-year-old Millie Bobby Brown, like somehow manages to survive Godzilla destroying Boston. She's smart enough to figure out how to get there on her own and navigate around the destruction, and she finds a safe place to hide. Mm -hmm. I don't know that she thinks she's going to survive, but she does. She
2: also steals the Orca and, like, brings Godzilla to Boston. Mm -hmm. Like, um, yeah, like, like, this is certainly the most empowering Godzilla movie I think of. I think also for summer blockbuster... Maybe the most representative oh, movie I can think of a
1: hundred percent a hundred percent I mean even better than the avengers in my opinion because the avengers was really not subtle about it they mm. were very overt and look at our representation mm. look at all the women yeah, you know just one scene together yeah yeah, yeah. And it, i mean that was really awesome but it was also very obvious and this movie it was just like oh this is just a normal thing i don't know what you're talking about
0: well especially when you compare it to the very first godzilla movie which has a lot of scenes where women um that were farmers are told explicitly, like. Hey, stop talking. The elders are here. The elder men are Mm -hmm. here to talk. And the only other female character in the movie is the maybe gaslighting female love triangle person.
1: Right. And I, you know, I think like I called, I have called Godzilla the, what did I call it in our podcast? The definition of cultural appropriation. And ultimately I think I still agree with that, but it makes me feel better that we are, you know, using it Mm -hmm. as maybe a mechanism to... Make representation in Hollywood something that's more readily accessible. Um, the fact that we're involving women, women of color. There was a one of the female the colonel, fighter pilots yeah. or colonels was um, a black woman, which I thought was really incredible. Yeah. yeah,
2: the the two women that are in positions of power, like um, in the in the U.S. like system here, is the senator that's in charge of Senate Armed Services or something is a black woman, and then the colonel that's largely in charge uh, of The whole U.S. military operation is a black woman, and then uh, and then you have Ken Watanabe and um, his assistant, whose name is escaping me now, um, Doctor something. She gets eaten by Ghidorah, Um, and then Millie Bobby Brown and the two Chinese twins, which is a throwback to the Mothra Mm -hmm. thing. so there's a lot of women, and it's just assumed that they're capable and mm-hmm. they should be in charge. There's no discussion about like, yeah. like, oh, she has to be in charge now or
0: something. Like it just there isn't a Bradley happens. Whitford uh, one liner, which he has a lot of little snide That's, comments, yeah. but nothing like that.
2: Yeah, the the only the like, uh, this is really bothering me. There, I can't remember his name, but coach. <laughs> is like still like sort of the quintessential like white savior sort of thing, mm-hmm. but I think that all of the plot is actually moved forward by women in this movie. Like, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, all the MacGuffins, everything with the exception of Ken Watanabe as Shirazawa, who sacrifices himself, but then uh, uh, Vera Farmiga sacrifices herself at the end to draw Ghidorah away. Like they all have equally important, if not more important,
0: roles, in the and movie. and they also give one. Of the villainish roles to you know the mother yeah. as well, so they they, they I mean obviously she at the end of the movie she, right
1: yeah the, the, up, they they yeah. argue against this idea that women are inherently peaceful right like she wants to release destructive monsters yeah. into the world in order to. I mean, she's, a, she's on board with yeah. Tywin Lannister's plan to kill half of the people that exist. And
2: Millie Bobby Brown calls her a monster, yeah. which is like in a monster Perfect. movie I thought yeah. was really good. Yeah. Like, you're a monster. And like, she is. It's like some weird genocide thing. You know? <laughs> well,
0: uh, speaking of, of different ways of appropriating things over time, let's get into the nuclear points. Because the first question I have, uh, and we're going a little bit long, but I want to make sure that we get to the nuclear discussion. You know, how do the different movies appropriate, you know, nuclear theme. U.S. movies in 2014 and 2019, they certainly seem very silly, you know, because with their nuclear plots, as we discussed, um, and they kind of get away from the original nuclear roots. And Jeff, you make this point on one of your recent really great episodes of Nukes of Hazard*, where you talk about, you know, that's actually with with Rachel, uh, about why these movies are a little bit, you know, silly in recent years. But I wanted to test this. I wanted to get at this question a little bit more, is, you know, we talked about some of the silly Toho plots, about when you start to introduce uh, Godzilla's you know, Sun, Mothra's twin groupies, uh, you have aliens, you have Mecha Godzilla. you know, how does, how do, what does this really say about like Toho's take on nuclear issues as they evolve over time? How Godzilla goes from being a metaphor for nuclear weapons and humanity's hubris um, in creating this technology and so you can't really destroy it, uh, to now being a, a savior for both Japan and the Earth.
2: Well, so th- this is something I get criticized for a lot. Obviously this is art. Like, part of this is entertainment. You know, you can't just harp on nuclear weapons all the time. But I think that what – there's a pretty good through line here, and we've already sort of talked about it, is that these movies act as an allegory for concerns of the people at the time. Mm -hmm. Right? Is it pollution? Is it – you know new scientific problems is it gmos is it cloning is it you know there's all sorts of stuff that comes into these films and i think that this most recent one is a pretty good example it's talking about mass extinctions and and climate change and you know nuclear energy and like all these problems that that mankind has created through through our hubris, but which is also tied to our science. Through science, we're able to create incredible and terrible things. Like nuclear weapons, right? Going all the way back to the beginning of this discussion. We see the nuclear parallel sort of walked out of Godzilla. And he becomes this benevolent force. Like Rachel's saying, it mm-hmm. becomes Japan builds this massive nuclear enterprise. You know, they are the breakout state today that nobody likes to talk about they have more plutonium than almost any other well more than any other
0: peaceful nuclear power nation and one thing i see too is is that as the cold war starts to ramp up and japan's relationship with the united states starts to improve the concerns for the japanese people are a little bit less about world war ii and the united states but also well now we're worried about you know korea mm-hmm. uh, north korea we're now we're concerned about. Um, Russia during the Cold War, and you get this essentially this, you know, US nuclear extended deterrence. Yeah. You know, the nuclear umbrella it becomes this benevolent force. Right.
2: Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's interesting. Where I think it really breaks down, though, mm-hmm. and I know that we're going to get to this later because I have the same problem with Pacific Rim. But in this movie, in, in the most recent one, in Godzilla King and the Monsters, I find there to be something. I was with this movie all the way up until the point where Ken Watanabe <laughs> sacrifices himself with a nuclear bomb to save the monster mm-hmm. and and it like they don't hit this over the head and in fact they don't ever talk about it But they show it, which I thought was interesting. He pulls out his father's Hiroshima pocket watch. But they never tell you what it is in this movie. After spending about a minute with it in the 2014 movie. It's the last thing he... Like, he goes up, he pets Godzilla on the nose, he looks at his dad's watch, and then he blows himself up with a nuclear weapon. And I was like, that is really twisted. I know, it's really messed up. It's really twisted. And I get... I get that it's art and a plot and entertainment and we shouldn't take it that seriously, but that really is a kick in the face to a Shiro Honda's original movie. You know, like like if you like and respect these films, whew, that's a tough one to swallow. That one really bothered me.
1: Yeah. And I, I think that that is quintessentially what I mean by Godzilla being the definition of cultural appropriation, yeah. right? Like it, you can have something be, Arts, or you can have something become entertainment that has a deeper message and the Japanese I think have largely continued to do that with Godzilla like Godzilla movies from Japan are still entertaining. The, right. the 2014 movie was an entertaining movie and you could do that from a more of an American art style that would allow American audiences to still enjoy it just as much as you know they do the 2014 or 1998 movies because of their production value. But include the original message right. from the original movie, which is that Godzilla is a nuclear weapon and we shouldn't be, you know, causing him to be seen as a benevolent, good thing to have.
0: Yeah. Right. And, and like, they're almost there with it. With the, the 2014 rest of the film. movie, I don't, I don't disagree with you. The 2014 movie does have that as one of the plots. Like, the right. nuclear weapon is loose and out of control.
2: Right. And in this one, I feel like they're almost there like they talk about Godzilla being radioactive a bunch
0: right and it go like, super critical at the yeah.
2: end yeah, like and like him like melting a city with his like atomicness or whatever you know like like he's a, he's yeah. a walking bomb and, like, they're almost there. They even use the, like you said, they call back to the oxygen destroyer. They're like, the American military says, we're going to use this thing that's worse than a nuke to try to kill them. And it it doesn't really work. And, and it, like, even a call back to the original film, all these dead fish float up to the surface, right? And it's sad. And it's terrifying. And then to have the one Japanese character, the one guy who has a direct yeah. connection to Hiroshima, blow himself up with a nuclear weapon—I
0: was like, this is bad. This is not right. It's pretty. It's pretty rough.
1: I think I would also argue too that you—you you never hate Godzilla at any point in this movie. Not even. Not even. Maybe a little bit in at the, the beginning, beginning yeah. um, when you realize that he's caused all of this destruction in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. That they don't really show at the end of the 2014 movie, and you realize like he's killed a kid, and mm-hmm. that's really sad. But after that, that's really the last moment that I remembered being like, "Oh man, Godzilla is really scary." And throughout the rest of the movie, uh, yeah. you see Millie Broby Brown's character reaching out to the was that Godzilla? Was that, that Mothra? Was but, and so then you relate Mothra and Godzilla, and you come to see them as these and when he
2: when he friends. shows when he shows up in Boston, she smiles. Yeah. Right? yeah, yeah.
1: And so I I think that that's almost like a, a more dangerous version of this because you're right; they are so close. They they have all of these. Th- throwbacks to the original message but they throw all of those things almost in its face right they're yeah. like oh look remember that really terrible thing you guys yeah. were talking about it doesn't matter it it's wasn't funny. that terrible yeah. and they yeah. have
2: just one more thing they have this one throwaway line at the end where like it's good to know he's on our side and one yeah. of them says for now
0: so i that's why i wonder if the next movie they're going to go back to because the antagonistic the antagonistic so when the Godzilla was rebooted in ninety four in 18, 1984, he was back to being the villain. And it's kind of – but he's placed within Cold War context. Mm-hmm. So Godzilla accidentally starts uh, off a, a case of mistaken identity between U.S. military and Soviet submarines. So they think that they're like starting a fight together. It's almost like the Cuban Missile Crisis and the sub-bumping and – and some of those conflicts, uh, it also does reflect the fact that the Japanese military at that time was starting to become more of a, a powerful force. The SDF force has all these great new weapons. you got Super X team uh, that has all these like lasers to fight Godzilla. Things become very, very, very different. So I, I this is super interesting to see how this may go if the next movie, King Kong, is going to be the hero and Godzilla might be the bad guy or some... It'll probably be like Batman versus Superman. they will
2: fight at first yeah. and then team up against something else. Against probably, you know, maybe be the aliens. Dead, so maybe it yeah. turns out
0: that the time when Lannister was actually an alien. An alien. Yeah. One more last thing here before we on to the next question is, I think it's so interesting that we talked a lot about the original Godzilla movies, about how they kind of tiptoed around uh, the U.S. Well, a lot of that was very explicit. So there were, according to the article, Godzilla in the Japanese after World War II from scapegoat of the Americans to the savior of the Japanese by Yoshiko Ikeda wrote an article that said that uh, even after the end of the occupation there was a tacit agreement Between the Japanese film industry and the United States Army, embodied by the voluntary control system of the Motion Picture Code of Ethics Committee. Two other films released after the end of the occupation mentioned the bodily uh, damage caused by radiation and the destruction of the two cities, but never connected these events Mm -hmm. to the United States or Americans. So there was this really strong relation. And as the United States and Japan improved their relations, more of the blame got placed on the Japanese uh, military government and military elites. As opposed to you know the Americans causing the damage in the first place, so I, I think that is a really interesting dynamic as well. Is that as much as the original movie kind of really gets as close as it can up to that line, it probably I don't know, but it may have wanted to go a little bit further, but it just literally couldn't because of the laws of occupation. Um, all right, so the next question I want to ask is for Rachel. So your article that you wrote uh, with Deborah Holmes and in, in Ink stick Media, it uh, had a que- it posed the question of whether or not Godzilla movies. Can be used to teach people about nuclear issues? You know, since the public has largely forgotten about these questions, not completely, but we don't think about it on a day-to-day basis. The Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, the INF Treaty, just stopped. It's now done. The United States has pulled out. And there aren't massive protests in the streets like there were to up up to the point leading why Reagan decided to negotiate this treaty. So I wanted to ask you, are these... Godzilla movies are they effective only as a response to people's specific concerns, you know, post World War II Japan, the Cold War, post Fukushima, as reflections of those anxieties, or how do you think that films like these could potentially be used to advance debate about nuclear issues today? So, hard question. This is really the question I ask every podcast we do.
1: Yeah, it is a hard question. I I think that for American audiences, if you're go- if you're not someone who's working in the nuclear policy space. And you walk into a theater to see Godzilla, at no point are you considering what the nuclear message of this movie is going to be. You're here to see Godzilla, you're here to see monster fights, you're mm-hmm. here to see, you know, your summer movie blockbuster that's gonna have a lot of destruction, and hopefully something will blow up. You Sometimes know?
0: robots fighting giant monsters, right? Yeah, yeah, right.
1: yeah. So I think that I would argue that as it stands, unless unless someone is explicitly, you know, using them in a classroom setting where, you know, they tell the group of students, who's in a classroom, we're going to watch Godzilla and I want you throughout the movie to think about the nuclear implications of it so mm-hmm. that we can talk about them afterwards. Then maybe yes, the movies as they stand, especially if you'd had a conversation with the people in the room about the original message of Godzilla, can be used for educational purposes. But as they are right now, we're not using them that way. I mean, I'm sure there are some teachers somewhere. I know you got into a conversation on Twitter recently mm-hmm. with someone about like, can you recommend some movies to me? I'm you know teaching interns about nuclear policy, and,
0: and I hope you recommended her, you know, her and Deverick's article because that I don't think provides that. The the oh well, that, that, yeah. that those kinds of contexts are yeah. really quite good for describing these things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, someone who recently passed away in the nuclear community, Jan Nolan, um, who ran, uh, she was a, an amazing scholar of nuclear of nuclear topics and nuclear policy. She wrote a great book called guardians of the arsenal. She was involved in nuclear policy for a very long time. And it was a good mentor for many of us. Uh, she wrote a, a great piece. And when I first started this podcast, we had a long conversation about Godzilla because mm-hmm. she wrote a piece. I believe it was in the bulletin of the atomic scientists on why Godzilla uh, was a good and three-headed Gamera was a good metaphor for the triad mm-hmm. and yeah, modernization yeah. and things like that. So I'll provide a link to that. Uh, but she she recently passed away, and I think she um, always had. I always enjoyed talking to her about Godzilla in nuclear films. And yeah, you really do you, you do need that you context. Have
1: to, you have to set it up. So if you're if you're in a position where you're able to set it up, then I think that Godzilla can be used. But again, it would be about people critiquing it, right? Like oh. Mm-hmm. You know, you can use it to talk about the negative message about nuclear weapons that it portrays, or positive, I guess, depending on your opinion of nuclear weapons. But most people in the nonproliferation and disarmament policy space are going to say that Godzilla does not portray, at least the American version of Godzilla, does not portray the correct message to American audiences about nuclear weapons.
0: Do you think in a Hollywood movie, a Hollywood Godzilla movie today? Can be comfortable with acknowledging U.S. atomic bombings and the dangers of nuclear weapons. God, nuclear weapons are MacGuffins, and they're less about, uh, you know, pure dangers and things. Which is yeah. gets back to the entertaining point. Maybe that's just not an entertaining message.
1: So I think the other thing that you have to. Like maybe take into consideration when we're talking about nuclear weapons and Hollywood is that Hollywood today seventy percent of its revenue still comes from abroad audiences right mm-hmm. and a large portion of that abroad audience is China and Chinese audiences don't really want you to talk about ha- the fact that having nuclear weapons is bad either right um, because Chinese the you know public in China is largely supportive of their government having nuclear weapons now nuclear power and nuclear power and, yeah. and they they're supportive of the fact that China has a no first use policy which the United States doesn't and so i think there's maybe room for an american hollywood critique of the way that the united states hmm. uses nuclear weapons as you know a defensive mechanism or at least portrays them as the possible a possible defense mechanism as opposed to something that's a response that could largely be successful but I think that in Hollywood today, if it was going to be a successful blockbuster film, like the Godzilla movies are currently, they would have to be really careful about an overall critique of the existence of nuclear weapons. That would not go over well in China. It wouldn't go over well in the United States. And, I, yeah, I think that would be hard.
0: Yeah. It may have to be a Toho film.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think
2: that 2014 almost got there. I've like like you said Garrett Edwards like he wrote a, he gave an interview where he talked about the importance as a nuclear movie. Yeah. Uh it like I said it's obvious that he or the screenwriters had some nuke conversations. The nukes were the bad guys in the film if you're asking me. Uh but the interest and and it got it was the largest international and um US ticket sales since the 1998 movie. Uh it was almost there. Interestingly the criticism of the movie was that it didn't show the monsters fighting enough. Yeah. Right? You know, so... it focused too much on the nukes. Yeah, so, I mean, so the audience wanted more Avengers sort of action and less about the nuclear danger. Um, and, And a lot of that movie is really directed at the fear of nuclear radiation, the fear of fallout, the fear of nuclear blasts. I mean, like, like there is a strong through line of anti-nuke stuff throughout that movie. It's just not for people like us sitting here it, who like to kibitz about it. Like there's a lot to kibitz about. but, but That's kind of what I do. Yeah. But I mean, it, it's, I feel like it's almost there. And And then they were like, well, maybe people don't dig this that much. How can we make it about climate change and everything else and stuff that's more relatable to people?
0: okay well so clearly these movies are uh not meant for people like us you know nuclear policy nerds how uh, dare you i love these movies <laughs> well it's not you know they, we're not the target audience in mind so let's uh i have created something for both of you uh we're gonna play a little game so we're done with the nuclear policy discussion uh we're I'm gonna have a little game here that's designed explicitly for you all to test your knowledge of nuclear weapons and Godzilla. Oh, yikes. So here we go. So let me get this all set up here.
2: This is really going to put us to shame. Yeah, Yeah. I'm really worried. If these are questions called from every single Godzilla movie, we're screwed. (laughs) It's going to be good. That
0: actually helps out then. So I play the Pacific Rim soundtrack to get Jeff off tilt here. Godzilla movies are famous for the exotic weaponry deployed by humans to take on the monsters. But some of these weapons sound a lot like uh, crazy real life weapon systems. Therefore, I want to play a round of the classic game Godzilla Lord of War. (laughs) I will name a weapon system and you will tell me whether or not it is from a Godzilla movie, real life, or both.
1: Oh no. I'm going to be so bad. So excited.
0: (laughs) So I've got two little echo buttons here. So, uh, Jeff, what does it sound like when your name gets buzzed? Jeff.
1: Roar. (laughs) Yeah. And Rachel? Rachel.
0: Roar. Okay. So you buzz in with your name with those little buttons there. Uh, Correct answers get one point. Uh, Wrong answers get a negative point. So there is some implications here. Um, For example, just a quick test here. The Oxygen Destroyer. Jeff. Roar. <laughs> uh, real life Godzilla movie or both?
2: I'd be Godzilla, Tim.
0: Oh, see, that's perfect. Okay, all right. So we're gonna start here. I've got fifteen of these. So the first person to uh, to get to seven or whoever, we'll see how it goes oh, at the end. God,
1: you're gonna win. All right, here we go. <laughs> I'm gonna sabotage myself.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Number one, Satan.
1: Rachel, roar. Godzilla.
0: That is real life no it is the uh, the r m an ICBM designed by the Soviet Union during the Cold War.
1: We call it satan <laughs> it 's the
0: NATO code name for this weapon. these were the wow. these were uh, had three warheads and they were really dangerous that 's why they called them the can nato
1: I, Can I preface myself here? I just started studying nuclear weapons uh, approximately six months ago because hey, you
0: 're going to win still. <laughs> no. Well, that that will be perfect. All right. So, un- unfortunately, that is negative one for Rachel. But negative points are a thing. Yeah. No, okay. Well, there's yeah. plenty of questions said here. You there's
1: implications. Yeah. All, right,
0: I'm ready. All right. The next one: Soviet nuclear attack satellite.
1: Jeff, roar.
0: Godzilla. Technically, both. Um, uh, it was in the the real the Return of Godzilla from 1984, um, and uh, the U.S. and Russia researched, uh, never fielded these systems, but there was a part of the plan was to deploy nuclear weapons from space this was a in the movies it was a russian geostationary weapon that could orbit the earth and drop nuclear weapons
2: some real dr strange love stuff right count me minus
0: all right uh so we, we're now we're tied to negative one the next one radioactivity sondi a radioactivity sondi
1: oh i don't jeff roar
0: real from son of godzilla in 1967 it was a weather control capsule that would spray a gas that would change the climate. However, something went wrong, and radiation leaks caused a heat wave, storms, and created the giant mantis kaiju called Kamakuras.
2: Hell yeah. Wow. Now, see, I told you you're winning. I'm at minus two now. Minus oh two. Oh,
1: my two. gosh. It's just because I'm, you're, like, trigger-happy, and I'm like, uh. Well, <laughs> I, read, this is,
2: this is, I read something about Jeopardy a couple months ago that was like, no matter
0: what, just answer. Yeah. <laughs> well, here's the next one. The Honest John.
1: Rachel, roar. I'm I'm gonna go real.
0: It was real, but also oh in Rodan, goodness. 1956. What the so this was a U.S. nuclear capable surface-to-surface rocket. So it was an artillery piece. Uh, it was an American ballistic missile launcher, and it was also in Rodan uh, in 1956. The scariest of all
2: Godzilla movies. I, th-
0: I think um, uh, Kasilik on Twitter uh, mentioned this and showed us some pictures of that particular uh, use of these weapons, which are they're white rockets. I thought those were Davy Crockett's. Davy Crockett's, but I think it's a similar... like Honest John is a version of that. Okay. Um, uh, but yeah, so the next one. The SRAM-2. Jeff. Roar. Real. That is real. Excellent. You got yes, one point John. there. So now minus So minus one, one, Jeff. It was a nuclear air-to-surface missile canceled by the George H.W. Bush administration in the presidential nuclear initiatives. But I thought the SRAM, too. sounded something interesting. Uh, the next one is called The Vulture. Rachel, Roar.
1: <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so the Vulture. I'm going to say, because I just feel like we need one of these, Godzilla only.
0: Godzilla only. Yeah! Ooh! 19, uh, from the 2008 movie, The gods the Monster X Strikes Back, Attack the G8 Summit. Uh-huh. That is the name of the movie. It's a Japanese missile from that film. Uh-huh. See, that so, one sounds like another NATO designation. I know, Russia, but like, yeah. the yeah.
1: we had been too long without one that was only Godzilla. Uh, now you're playing so. the game. These are all, these yeah. are all yeah. randomized. Yeah. Yeah. I, I <laughs> randomize these. With, the game.
0: Uh, but all right. Anti-nuclear energy bacteria.
2: Jeff. That's Whoa. a Godzilla thing.
0: Yeah, it's from Godzilla versus Bilolante? Biolante? Biolante. Biolante. Yeah. 1989, ge- genetically engineered super weapon. Yeah. All right, so Jeff's back to zero. Hell yeah. <laughs> polonium
1: 210.
0: Rachel, Roar, both. Nice work. The Monster <laughs> X true? strikes back, attack the G8 summit from 2008. A radioisotope of the element of polonium also unfortunately used in radiological attacks uh, in real life. Good job. Did you see that one on, did you have to watch that one or that was a guess?
1: That, it was a guess. I knew it was a real life weapon, but I just hoped that they also, <laughs> yeah. it, it well makes sense for them to have talked about it in the Godzilla movie.
0: Well, especially I want to watch this movie attack the G8 summit. Yeah.
2: The the millennia era of Godzillas are the ones that I've watched the least. I've, I think I've
0: only seen one. Right? We, got, we got, to, got to do a marathon. Yeah. Uh, Next one here, which is number nine of this, Atomic Heat Cannons. Jeff, roar. It's Godzilla. Godzilla Battle in Outer Space, 1959. Yeah. I don't know anything else about it except for that it exists.
2: Well, maybe the they sort of retcon as atomic breath becomes atomic heat breath at one
0: point. Yeah, I saw that. So I watched a video on YouTube. It was uh, someone at a toy festival, and they were describing the new Godzilla toys from the new movie. And they explicitly said Toho told them not to call it atomic breath. It's heat breath. Yeah. Even though that's the fans call it atomic breath because they don't want to associate Godzilla these days explicitly as a, yeah. a nuclear thing. Which that was kind of interesting. Next one here is the D03 missile. The DO3 missile.
1: Rachel. Roar. I'm going to go... Oh,
0: dang. This is a hard one. It's, got a, it's just a generic name.
1: I'm trying to figure out what the D would stand for in real life. So I'm going to go Godzilla. <laughs> nice. <Yeah. laughs> this is really using yeah. your
0: chops here. That's awesome. Yeah. It. We don't know what it stands for, but it is in the movie Godzilla, Mothra, and King Ghidorah: Giant Monster All-Out Attack, Hell yeah. 2001. It's a rocket weapon, which is attached to a submarine. Great. Excellent. Uh, the next one is called Green Grass. <laughs> Green Grass. <Yeah>. Godzilla. <laughs> Uh, It is a real-life weapon. Oh, come on. It was the interim megaton weapon early on in the nuclear weapon design program in the United Kingdom. So they would always go, their code name for their weapon designs were like a color right. and then a random code so right, sometimes right. it was like blue danube yeah or something so green this grass is,
1: this is the real life implications of the military using too much code language <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> i think if i got this math right it's one rachel zero, zero yeah. jeff i think little i'm little tracking way. that i may be a little bit off but we're good we're we're close uh microwave six thousand thunder control system jeff That's Godzilla. Uh, You're not one of those conspiracy people that think that we have uh, uh, microwave systems. It is. It it is a Godzilla movie. Godzilla versus Biolante. A series of electrical generators and microwave pads. All right. So we're tied up. We have three left. Snark. What? You're using against us right now? (laughs) Snark. The name of the weapon system is Snark. Rachel. Roar. Both. It's just real. (laughs) The snark took its name from the author Lewis Carroll's character, the snark. It is an early model intercontinental range ground launch cruise missile that could carry a W thirty-nine thermonuclear warhead. (laughs) So back to zero. (laughs) Two left here. So now to get into really strategy. Championship
2: rounds now.
0: The Hades. Oh. Jeff Roar. Jeff, you can really put it away here if you get this right. Real, both, or Godzilla? Real. It is a real-life, short-range, ballistic, pre-strategic nuclear weapon designed by France. And uh, as a last warning of the use before a strategic nuclear weapon. And that's it.
2: Ah, oh, good job. Yes!
0: So... Finally, finally got a non-Godzilla one
2: correct. Correct. Right. Yeah. yeah. All
0: right. Well, so there's one last one here, uh, just for fun. So if- no,
2: we'll make this worth all the points. Okay. Yeah, yeah. All my double zero. Or, oh, double or. Or I forgot to
0: mention the prize for this uh, is a Aww. a toy B Two. Tell me there was a prize that,
1: on the that would look way better on your bookshelves. So.
0: And uh, the reason is is in the new Godzilla movie, all of like the giant helicopter well, giant like carriers that would drop B twenty twos just look like giant yeah. B twos. Yeah. For some reason. Don't it's, necessarily it's, it's know what's B
2: twenty one, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's what it's gonna be. Yeah. The, the Raider? Yeah, it's a helicarrier. Um, all right. So the last one here, the Thalos. The Thalos. T-A-L-O-S. I
1: have no idea. Rachel. Roar. I'm going to go both.
0: It's just real. Oh. <laughs> it's a, it's a long-range naval surface-to-air missile. It was one of the earliest uh, surface-to-air missiles equipped on U.S. naval ships. Wow. So, Jeff... I think is the winner here. Is that right?
1: This would have looked really good with my um, fascism, but make it fashion. (laughs) Set up on my desk, Uh, I have a replica of Capitol Hill and a tiny little replica of a tank that's covered in glitter. So I I think that it will look better on your bookshelf. I
2: think that you got the more complicated answers right. All of mine were just the whatever twenty thousand like things that no military
0: names their stuff yeah you're just like yeah i mean i, I just watched godzilla versus yeah. biofonte yeah, i was just looking so.
2: for silly names of things i think you should keep it
0: no well no, it, you guys can keep some fight over that continually but congratulations Thank uh you. to jeff officially Thank for winning you. but that was a close one that was a real close one
2: yeah real nail biter <laughs> uh
0: all right so let's move into the last couple sections here because this episode is going long but we have a few things to talk about Let's do what I call the parking lot movie discussion. So this is harkening back to when I would, as a kid, would watch a movie, and when I was waiting for my parents to, to, you know, get the car. We would hang out in the parking lot with our friends and talk about the, the film we just saw. Or, you know, I, when I got my own car, we would chat uh, before we went our separate ways. So I got a couple different questions here. Uh, one, what do you think works better as a nuclear theme in these Godzilla movies: nuclear weapons or nuclear power? It seems like in some of the early movies, it was nuclear weapons and it became nuclear energy. Does this, do you think that it affects at all the the premise or can a Godzilla movie, even without nuclear things, still continue to do well? Like if the next movie, Godzilla versus uh, King Kong, doesn't even mention the word nuclear at all. Can that movie still work or does it have to be tied together?
2: Sure. I I mean I think that obviously the origins of this movie is nuclear weapons. But I'm not somebody that's gonna say like every Godzilla movie needs yeah. to be about nukes. Like I get this is this is art and entertainment. Like that doesn't gonna work that way. I think it's important that all of them do hearken back to a real allegorical problem on the planet. So, like, I do think that them connecting... Climate change was an interesting way to go with it, even though I'm not sure if it makes sense for them to be helping the climate or whatever. <laughs> the question about whether or not nuclear weapons or nuclear power as a threat are more dangerous is an interesting and controversial one. I... Obviously, nuclear weapons are enormously destructive. The threat from nuclear power accidents is long and lingering and mm-hmm. impossible to deal with, like we talked about in Chernobyl, right? It wasn't explosively bad, but over a dozen years killed upwards of several thousand people, depending on who you talk to, all the way up to 41,000 people, something like that, right? Um, and I think that the problems associated with both nuclear weapons and nuclear power are equally bad. We don't know what to do with nuclear power waste, right? It just it sits in containment pools. Can't right? just feed it to mutos. Yeah, you can't feed it to monsters. It's a big terrorist and proliferation threat. It's you know there's serious scary problems that it deals with. So I think it works in both cases.
0: Rachel, would you be okay if the next God- Godzilla v king kong movie has nothing related to nuclear things in it
1: i would be pretty disappointed just because i think that godzilla does have an origin story and it is nuclear so i think i would be disappointed if the movies move to where there's no mention of nuclear weapons or nuclear power at all i think that in terms of the general question of which works better as far as the nuclear message i think that for non-american audiences that the nuclear power actually works better but i think Mm. that for American audiences, we don't like most people don't have a conception of what nuclear power is. We've never actually felt firsthand any of the negative side effects necessarily of nuclear power. Whereas people throughout the United States, whether you're in support of you know nuclear weapons programs or you've lived you know near a nuclear testing site or near um, um, any of the proliferation-related activity sites you understand the gravity of nuclear weapons at least some in some way so i think that for american audiences nuclear weapons is the better nuclear message
0: i wonder if that will change at all after even though it was not its intent but after chernobyl an incredibly popular show that showed a very dangerous nuclear power accident um, but also i don't know if this is really getting out into the major you know news outlets but you know we in recent news the uh, Russian, what they call the the Skyfall mm-hmm. uh, cruise missile, which instead of it being powered only by liquid or solid fuel, it also had a little bit of a small nuclear uh, reactor in there, which allowed the ballistic, which allowed the cruise missile to travel kind of indefinitely mm-hmm. for a long you know, long period of time and reach anywhere on the earth. That recently, during one of the tests, we don't have a lot of information. It's kind of a lot like Chernobyl, where we don't know everything that went on. Uh, it exploded, killed a bunch of people, and it has lingering radio- radiation issues. Right. I wonder if any of those two main touch points of recent news means that it will be an interesting hook for a new film. It hates to say, you know, tragedy leading to, you know, good hooks for cinema, but people, that's what they do when they write things, is they try to connect to something that you understand. I wonder if that will be something that may affect into the future.
2: I think that that you brought up Chernobyl. Chernobyl's a great example. The amount of times now, in the past couple of months that i've had uh staffers on the hill or something be like tell me how real is chernobyl
0: right like i hope uh, you're pointing them to the podcast (laughs) absolutely
2: um but when when you make a compelling piece of art or television you know people start to care about these issues Mm -hmm. Uh, maybe godzilla isn't the right franchise for that anymore people want to see monsters fight you know like maybe that 's just not the right place for it anymore, but um you know our our colleague Alex Bell, just spent some time out in California going to a writer 's workshop for people that are interested in writing nuclear storylines. Okay. There are people that want to pick these issues up because they are scary. Uh, people have largely sort of forgotten about the problems of nuclear weapons up until recently, up until you know more fire and fury sort mm-hmm. of Donald Trump things. Uh, this new Russian missile, you know, some of my close friends and more people on the Hill are be like, I'm obsessed with this nuclear missile. What does this mean? Mm-hmm. You know, what, what is this thing? You know, and like the, there's so many conspiracy theories that are out there about it already. People are sort of waking back up to these nuclear issues and, and in large respect are waking up to a nuclear nightmare here, right? You know, some of these things. Most people assume that we fixed after the end of the Cold War, and that's just not the case. And every, you know, I love Eric Slosher says, you know, every year where there isn't a nuclear accident just makes it more likely that there's one the next year. You know, just because things haven't happened doesn't mean that it's safe, right? Right. And and that's scary. But I think that there is interest in this field again right now,
0: and it does also reflect itself in the pop culture that we end up getting. Uh, Whether it's, you know, early on Godzilla films and other movies like On the Beach that really raised people's awareness and anxieties about nuclear issues, reflected but also raised. uh, And we don't really see a lot of that as much these days. But what we get in movies like uh, Godzilla, where nuclear weapons are kind of go back and forth between being saviors and villains. And then another movie like Pacific Rim, uh, the Guillermo del Toro directed film, which is his version of a kaiju movie where he really wanted to have uh, giant monsters, but he wanted to have people and giant robots fighting them. Uh, And this is a a movie that um, may cause a a rift in uh, Jeff's and I's uh, friendship where I really like Pacific Rim, despite the fact that I will firmly recognize that as... The lead actor is terrible. Charlie Hanum? <laughs> is terrible in this movie. Despite that, everything else that works really well for the movie with me, which is the soundtrack, the fight scenes Idris Elba. Idris Elba, the concept, everything else for that movie, incl- including the really bad nuclear stuff at the very end of that movie, where to destroy the portal that is causing these giant monsters to come in to, in, to fight, the, you know, they end up destroying parts of Earth they first try to use a nuclear weapon it doesn't work but so then they cause their nuclear reactors that are inside of their giant robot suits and we're talking skyscraper-sized robots uh, they cause that to melt down and explode, which is Go super critical. Which now, is yeah. not yeah. not how this works. Like like the RBMK reactor, you cannot make these things explode. We can't don't have know, a fission explosion. You can't have like a fission that. explosion. Um, you can explode it and have radioactivity, but that's not how that works. But whatever. In the movie, it's a different kind of thing. Uh, I love this movie a lot, and I will genuinely say that it is more fun than any other Godzilla movie I've ever seen. Except maybe Final Wars, Godzilla Final Wars, because of the zaniness of that movie. I'm going to leave that out there, because I know, Jeff, uh, you think that that's nonsensical. Uh, And uh, Rachel, you said you haven't seen Pacific Rim, but you also like another really good, I think personally, really good uh, monster movie, Cloverfield, Mm -hmm. which came out in, what, 2008? Mm -hmm. Um, Which is J.J. Abrams' version of an American monster. So maybe we can play a little thing here where... Why you think like Cloverfield might be really good? I already said my piece about Pacific Rim with the funness of that movie, and then you can Jeff can have a counterpoint there because I I do really wonder those are our main cultural test points we have on on giant monsters and fighting and robots and things.
1: I haven't I haven't seen Pacific Rim. Uh, Cloverfield. I'm I'm gonna. I'm going to make myself sound really young here, guys. Um, I was in middle school when Cloverfield came out, and I, I've watched it since then. I've, I watched it again in high school. But like I mentioned earlier, I just started really like focusing on nuclear issues uh, seven months ago or so when mm-hmm. I started working at hey, the center. I,
0: that's pretty great. I mean, that's way better than I was after... Ten years.
1: <laughs> um. So I haven't ever watched Cloverfield from a like nuclear perspective. And now that you've brought it up, I will definitely have to go do that. But in general, I loved the Cloverfield movies. I loved Cloverfield. I loved Cloverfield Lane. I like scary movies. Mm-hmm. But I also was always kind of a scaredy cat. And I liked that Cloverfield wasn't a horror movie to me. Like, it was just a thriller. I loved the production value. I thought the monster was really creative. It's
0: a good use of the, um, what is it, found footage Mm -hmm. type film. Yeah,
1: I thought that the situations that the people were in were kind of like, I, I thought that it was... It it predated some of the zombie apocalypse movies where everyone has to get out of the city and, uh-huh. and they're rampaging the grocery stores and they they all have, there's like one bridge to leave and everyone gets stuck you know like those kinds of things I think that that was one of the films that has done that probably the best and made it seem the most realistic as you can when there's a giant monster that you know no one really understands uh-huh. um, so I just generally really enjoyed the Cloverfield movies and I will have to go back and. You know, critique them from a nuclear standpoint.
0: Cool, excellent. Um, well, the only thing else I want to add with the Pacific Rim is, um, I it's clearly it knows it's tongue in cheek, and I, I'm only going to defend the first one. I saw the second one in the theater, and I was I was never been, been more bored by a movie. The first one is really where all, where the joy in that movie is. My favorite scene in the movie is a, they're fighting with this giant robot, fighting a monster, and. In the middle of the fight they decide to do what they call activate rocket arm Mm -hmm. where as right before they go to punch the elbow of the robot has essentially like a a missile an icbm like firing out of its back which then causes the punch to you know i guess punch more punch (laughs) uh and i thought that movie that that one thing summed this movie up for me and when i came out of that film I was so pumped. My my, I saw this movie with my original podcast co-host Joel, and I don't know. I I couldn't get over that movie, and I uh, I listened to the soundtrack on a pretty regular basis at work because it is, it gets you pumped up. I never had that reaction to a Godzilla movie. I obviously the first couple of Godzilla movies are not meant to give you that reaction. Godzilla nineteen fifty four is not meant to be fun, but the other ones that do, it just doesn't work for me as much as as that one, including the most recent Godzilla movies. So Jeff, what do you uh? What's your take on all of that? Sans rocket punching me in the head.
2: I, I like both of these movies. I like Cloverfield a lot. I like uh, Pacific Rim a bunch. The, the thing that I think is interesting about them is that they are two great Western directors making love letters to Godzilla films, to kaiju movies. Mm-hmm. And I think that two things from like an art standpoint that they both get really well is the scale Um, I was just listening to something the other day about Pacific Rim where he says, the one thing that Guillermo del Toro got right about this is he – even throughout all of the super crazy CGI and special effects, he shot each one of those digital – shot in air quotes here – each one of those digital shots was done – from the perspective of where and how a real camera would shoot it, yeah. So the shakiness all, of it, yeah. Everything, all tracking shots, dolly shots, all like actual filmmaking techniques. It's not like where the camera zooms around Superman as he flies through the air, and you're like, oh, that's CG. Which is the problem with
0: the second movie—they do that,
2: right? And it looks terrible, right? They make the robots and the kaiju slow and lumbering, and there's weight and heft to them, and like the perspective is all done right. A lot of the shots are from the ground up looking at them right there,
0: there's a scene where one of the robots takes a uh, a ship, a ship yeah. and carries it like a cargo container ship yeah, yeah. and uses it like a baseball bat yeah. i'm not sure if that's how ships could be used <laughs> but, um but it, it, it you felt the weight of it right as it was being done and i thought that was really cool
2: and 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 what you're saying is exactly right i walked out of that film being like this is metal like i was so into it i was so pumped about it. i saw it with one of my best friends allison I remember we were sitting there. We both weren't working at the time. Uh, we were interns or something, and we, we had the day off. And I was like, hey, you want to go see a movie? And she was like, Sure. And I was like, let's go see this movie Pacific Rim. And she was like, I don't know what that is, but sure. And we went to it. The moment that it was giant monsters, she said, what is this movie? I said, like, eh, it's robots fighting aliens. And she was like, okay, Jeff, whatever. <laughs> and then, like, the moment that the, the first fight happened, she looked at me and she said, you didn't tell me it was giant monsters fighting giant robots. Um, I dig the movie for for that reason. I think it's very obvious that Guillermo del Toro loved it. I love the Honest Trailer guys say that it's either the most awesome, stupid movie yeah. Ever or the stupidest awesome movie ever? It's one of the two. I love Cloverfield for the same reason. It's an interesting thriller. Uh, they get the scale right since it is found footage. It's all from the perspective of TJ Miller. You know, like running around HUD, with the camera. Yeah, which HUD. I love that. His name yeah. is HUD. Yeah, he's literally around. heads up
0: display with the camera. Yeah,
2: you know, like like it's it's JJ Abrams does a very good job with it. It's
0: it's uh it's very well done but you think some of the other godzilla movies are more fun than the movie you enjoy that you thought was metal i think they're fun for different reasons i have the exact
2: same problem with pacific rim as i do with the most recent godzilla movie Mm -hmm. it's even more on the nose though because it's this american robot like gypsy danger she's the american robot and she's red white and blue baby and she's nuclear she's not digital or whatever Mm -hmm. you know like and, um, and what's the thing that saves, uh, Japan from the kaiju, another nuclear weapon blowing up, you know, mm-hmm. or Hong Kong, I guess in this case from the kaiju, another American nuclear weapon blowing up. And, and, and even I wasn't really a nukes person at the time yet when that movie came out, but my friend Allison looked at me and she's like, that seems a little twisted, doesn't it? And I was like, yeah, you know, it is. And it's sort of, even though I love that movie, I love watching that movie. Like, Guillermo del Toro somebody that takes the amount of time that he does to, like, get plots right and yeah. get movies right. I was like, man, like, that that's just a little gross, you so, know?
0: Yeah, so I guess my—and I'm really going to be splitting hairs here—is nuclear weapons are good at certain things. Right. They're good at causing large amounts of damage. They're very good at if they're designed to be radioactive, you know, like if they're salted with— you know, cobalt or something. They're very good at distributing nuclear material. They produce a lot of energy. So nuclear weapons can certainly be used for things like destroying bunkers. Uh, But are they good at other things like keeping the peace? Are they good at, they're certainly not very, probably very good at building canals, which we thought they would be able to do at some point. So for Pacific Rim, the function was high energy at this portal, it destroys it. Therefore, something will do it, whether it's a nuclear weapon or it's um, you know, a mega mega blast, super chest exploding thing that, like, say Tony Stark would have. It's another but,
2: MacGuffin. Like, it's another MacGuffin for the film.
0: But, but I'm super more concerned about the latest Godzilla movie, which was literally a the it had Godzilla in front of you, this radioactive monster whose origins, as Rachel described so clearly in her article, was about you know nuclear anxieties um, and having a, a son of a Hiroshima survivor yes. essentially blowing that up. Right. That was offensive to me, and it wasn't. Pacific Rim, but maybe I just no, wasn't. No, no, no. I wouldn't have in my you're, head on there. At that you're point. right.
2: Like, like I need to get off my high horse about this because what Godzilla just did in 2019 is way worse than what Pacific Rim. Did. I
0: will never ask anyone to stop being super critical about anything. <laughs> like, so I understand your perspective. I
2: mean, like it, it, it originally upset me in 20 when 2014 came out. I wrote a piece with Joe Scirrincione that I said, "Finally, we have a monster nuke movie that gets it right again. Like nukes are the bad guy, and and." Pacific Rim was sort of my straw man for that argument. I was like, here's an American movie that gets it totally wrong. Like, even though it's cool and awesome and fun, uh, the legacy is all messed up. But now we just had a Godzilla movie, like the, the arbiter of this framework, just get it so wrong. But at the same point, you know, I love the big green lizard, uh, you know, that I love the history behind this. I love Ashiro Honda. I love, you know, it still reminds me of being a little kid, being at home, having fun with my dad. It's still campy and interesting and cool. And I did like the new movie, but like, uh, boy, if you could recut that thing and just cut out the whole middle part, boy, it would be a great film.
0: Well, Jeff, let's actually put to numbers to kind of how much you love, uh, these films so we're going to do our rating system here to close this out because I always like to have a consistent one to five scale but I like to be super critical about the movie so I'm going to really tailor the rating system uh, and really we're going to have to figure this out you for your own persons, should decide do you want to rate just the last Godzilla movie because that's the one that's out or do you feel like rating the franchise as a whole to just be nice I'm going to do the entire franchise as a whole so it raises my number up a little bit uh, so what I'm going to do here is one out of five heads on King Ghidorah. Um, (laughs) One head is is clearly not better than two. You put three heads together, that's a pretty good start. But if you have five talking heads, you can have your own either political talk show or sports talk radio program. So I'm going to say for the Godzilla franchise as a whole, 3.5. I recognize that it's better than average. Godzilla films is entertainment. I respect all of that and what they mean in the history of nuclear weapons and things. But you know, you show me a random Godzilla movie, I'm probably not going to enjoy or get much out of it. Uh, but Rachel, what would you give, how many heads of King Ghidorah would you give, The whatever you want to rate, either yeah. the most recent movie or the franchise as a whole?
1: So I think because you rated the franchise and I think that you were fair in your assessment of the franchise, I'm going to rate the most recent movie. And, you know, at the beginning, before we had our conversation about this, I actually think that I would have given it a higher rating than I'm about to. Um, but I'm, I'm going to stick to my cultural appropriation. Like This is really detrimental to the original story of Godzilla, and I think that that does an extreme disservice to the people of Japan. I think it does an extreme disservice to the Marshall Islanders, um, and I think it does an extreme disservice to people all over the world who I believe are right about the you know, negative implications of nuclear weapons existing. Um, And so I'm going to give it a two because I think that it had... It was really entertaining. It was fun to watch. I remember walking out of the movie theater with you guys and Mm -hmm. being like, wow, I actually really liked that. And I, you know, kind of annoyed that I liked it. And, you know, I'm also going to give it props for the amount of representation that I have it had. I think that that was really important. But ultimately, the American version of these movies is just... Not in my opinion. Um, they just don't have the right message. They don't have the mm-hmm. right message, and they've co-opted this really unique Japanese experience and Japanese art form into something that is quintessentially American, and I kind of hate it.
0: it. The last movie was was woke, but not Warhead woke.
1: No, correct. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> All right, Jeff. What, do you, what would you get? What would you get? Well, first, what are you going to rate, and what are you going to give it?
2: I'm going to rate both. Okay, uh, I think that that Godzilla this is this is literally the longest running continuous franchise in history but this is there are over i think there's 35 films 36 films something like that there's uh blue oyster cult songs about Godzilla there's you know it's it's the the like Uh, The word Zilla is now a Japanese catch-all for anything that's large or American or, you know, (laughs) like, I mean, like, this is something that is part of our modern pop culture. I think that because of that, I'm going to give the series... Uh, four out of five heads it's it's the crossfire of uh, of monster movies you know <laughs> because it is a catch all there's so, there's so many good ones that are beyond the pale good and then there are so many campy Godzilla break dancing you know ones at the same time and you can love them for both reasons right you, we love them because they're campy we love them because they're silly Americans like them because they don't understand what the Japanese people are saying and yet there's monsters fighting each other at the same time yeah. I mean there's all sorts of weird reasons to like these movies and at the same time as being entertaining they deal with really important stuff Uh, they deal with really really tough to talk about stuff stuff that gives us an opportunity to have this sort of conversation Um, so I really like that this movie Uh I think King
0: of of the Monsters yeah
2: King of the Monsters was better than your average blockbuster for me Uh, you know Maybe it wasn't Avengers Endgame, but it was better than most of the superhero hero schlock that's out there right now. Mm-hmm. It would have been a perfect Godzilla movie for me barring that one scene with Ken Watanabe which really just I it was bad. I like almost made me want to get up and walk out. Yeah. Like it was really frustrating. But otherwise, you know, I walked out of that movie pretty jazzed. Um, I love the representation part of it. It's doing good things, but boy, it really just missed the mark on the most critical cultural feature. How many heads? I give it one. One head. It's the crazy doom is coming guy
0: up on his podium outside of the Metro stop. That's it? Yeah. Wow, that's a bummer. That really is a bummer. Um, Yeah, well, (laughs) so if we're not going to watch King of All Monsters again, uh, we can recommend some other things for people to check out. Uh, I've got three quick things. One, I mentioned this before. I really recommend people watch Godzilla Final Wars from 2004. Uh, it's a Toho movie where Godzilla fights all of the other versions of Godzilla and other monsters. It uh, includes space aliens. There's a spaceship involved. Uh, they fight Zilla in Sydney, mm-hmm. and it, he dispatches Zilla in like 10 seconds. It's kind of a, a funny kind of a little joke there. And one of the reasons why I love this movie is it stars one of my favorite UFC fighters, Don Frye. He has this, he's a very popular guy because he fought a lot in Japan, and uh, he's he's got a mustache. He's uh, amazing in the movie. He's not a great actor, but he is perfect for the film itself. Uh, I love that movie quite a lot. Um, secondly, I recommend the the web series on YouTube, "Sita Massacre." Uh, James Rolfe, uh, he's a YouTube guy. You may know him as the Angry Video Game Nerd, but he's also a huge Godzilla fan. So uh, I really like his series on Godzilla. So they're all like five minutes quick summaries of all the movies. You want to spend an hour hearing about every Godzilla movie. This is a great way to do it. Uh, and finally, I recommend Pacific Rim. Uh, just the first one. Um, I recommend people check check it out, especially if this is really going to be folded in somehow. Maybe not in the next one, but that might be a last credit scene where they'll be like, all right, we have to fight the monsters. And it will be like maybe their way of inter- integrating Mecha Godzilla like yeah. things into the fourth movie if they keep going. Uh, Rachel, anything you want to recommend to people to check out?
1: So this is not going to be surprising at all, but I, of course, recommend the original 1954 Japanese version of Godzilla. And I was surprised that Jeff didn't have this on his list, but I definitely recommend Chernobyl. I think that those are two that are really overt, obviously, and can be used definitely as ed- for educational purposes and will, like, spark people's curiosity about nuclear weapons um and nuclear energy my less obvious thing that i'm going to recommend is stranger things Hmm. um i think that stranger things has really big messages about nuclear energy i i think that the department of energy is the villain right the department of energy is the villain i think that the upside down is clearly a metaphor for what would happen if there was ever like a nuclear energy disaster in the united states Hmm. um and i think that there are a lot of like there are a couple interesting articles floating out around the the interwebs about you know people's people's critiques of this and interesting like connections that they've drawn between nuclear energy and stranger things so that's going to be my uh and there's a monster in stranger things who's you know definitely yeah um, Kaiju-esque So that's my That's my less obvious Recommendation
2: I like it That's a Jeff. great I, I love that too That's an awesome one
0: Jeff what do you got for us
2: uh, I'm always going to try To bring a couple Interesting books To these discussions uh, This time in the form Of graphic novels um, Those that want to read More about Godzilla I really like Godzilla the Half Century War Which I recommended To Tim once upon a time
0: You, you, you lent it to me And yeah. I read it And it was awesome Yeah
2: it, it takes place With a guy Who's in the Japanese uh, Self-defense force He's a Sherman tank guy driver fighting Godzilla the very first time he shows up in Tokyo Bay, all the way through to modern Godzilla, and it's this one man's uh, sort of drive to fight this monster, and then just like everything else in this series, end up fighting alongside the monster. Uh, It was great... It looks at Godzilla in the whole spectrum. Uh, there's another really interesting one, which is way more artsy and interesting, but is sort of fun and silly at the same time. is called Godzilla in Hell, and it's about one of these times where Godzilla dies. Uh, he goes to hell, and it's basically Dante's Inferno, but
0: with Godzilla. Does and he it, talk at all, or just General Godzilla?
2: It's just General Godzilla, but it's through the perspective of the monster, and it's just really strange and interesting. Um, he might fight a Satan missile maybe uh then um i really recommend cloverfield i love that movie jj J. abrams is a good director i mean he's a great director and his love letter to kaiju films after he visited japan with his son and remembered how much he loved toho era japanese godzilla and wanted to make something like that for his son and i it's just obvious it's a great film
0: awesome there are great recommendations all around i think people have a lot of great things to check out uh Thank you very much, Rachel. Thank you very much, Jeff, uh, for coming on the podcast. Uh, If people want to learn more about your work, uh, maybe you can give us some plugs. Maybe, you know, obviously you can go to the Center, the Center for um, Arms Control and Nonproliferation, and see some of your different work. Uh, But if people want to follow you on Twitter or anywhere else that your your, your work is is at, where can people check that out? Let's start with Rachel.
1: You can definitely find links to the stuff that I've done on the Center's website, and then my Twitter is at rachel r-a-c-h-e-l underscore emond e-m-o-n-d yeah that's pretty much those are the locales
0: Jeff, where can we people find you?
2: Yeah, I'm on Twitter, at Nuclear Wilson, and then also give our uh, Institute, the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation, a shout out, uh, at Nukes of Hazard. That's Nukes underscore of underscore hazard. Our own podcast is very good. We just talked to the daughter of a Hiroshima survivor, and it's one of the most interesting and compelling pieces of work that I certainly have done in my career in nukes.
0: Yeah, Nukes of Hazard is a great podcast. Rachel, uh, you were on that for an episode that Jeff hosted on Godzilla. Uh, anything else we should be looking at for Nukes of Hazard?
1: So, I am actually guest hosting the Nukes of Hazard podcast during the month of August. Hopefully, that episode will come out on or around um, August 26th in celebration of Women's Equality Day. Uh, we'll be having a discussion about Heather Holbert from New America um, and her report. On the consensual straitjacket 40 years of women in nuclear security where we'll interview some of the women who were involved um, in the report participated in the report talking about their experience in nuclear security and sexism in the field today
0: terrific Uh, looking forward to seeing that one that will probably come out before uh, i'm able to finish editing this monster (laughs) king of all monsters of this of the podcast Uh, but in the meantime i will definitely link to it on our podcast page awesome thank you Uh, So we'll have links to all of those things, and people will definitely be able to to check out your work moving forward. So thanks very much. Thank you, Tim. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Super Critical Podcast. If you have suggestions for future episodes or want to tell us what we got wrong, uh, maybe you just want to tell me that Pacific Rim is not a very good movie, there's a couple ways you can do that and contact the show. You can go on Twitter at Nuclear Podcast. That's where I check we got a website, supercriticalpodcast.com. And I check in the email account, supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, this has been Tim Westmeyer. And Rachel. And Jeff. And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we are bound to get supercritical about it. Have a good one.